I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 303. And today in the show, we are analyzing a series of stories for you in which we'll hear from four hunters about five hunts with three bucks killed, two tags left unpunched, and a whole bunch of lessons learned. All right, welcome to the Wired Done podcast brought to you by Onyx. We are here today to talk about several hunts. We've got four people on the show total, but at different times. Right now it's me and Dan, and then a little bit later it'll be me and Tony Peterson. And then a little bit later, it'll be me and Andy May. And we all have been out hunting this month so far. And some of us have had success. Some of us did not. I want us to break down these four sets of hunts and what went right, what went wrong, and what we can learn from them. So first up, I've got nine-fingered wonder Dan Johnson here <laughs> from fresh off of the Colorado hunt. Right. Um, I want to hear about what's, what's, you know, how that went. We haven't got to talk. I mean, we texted a little bit around it, but we haven't actually got to talk. So I haven't even like texted you in a while. Right. Not since your last day of the hunt. Right. How was the, how's the fam doing first and foremost? Fam's good. I have some news on that front, by the way, which, which you don't know. Um, Oh boy. We had our ultrasound. Yeah. And baby number two is another boy. Uh-oh. So we got another another pack of boys over here. So yeah. Knox and Mac will have a couple of buddies here in Michigan. Yeah. I hope that they're just as ornery as my kids. <laughs> just so you know. Like, I don't know why, but I just envision your children being very polite, me being very, you know, okay, it's time to go to bed. Yes, father, I will go to bed. And the, they go to bed. Like for me, I have to get out like the, the hog taser and like get them into their rooms. <laughs> yeah. My, my son already keeps his hands folded neatly behind his back. <laughs> he carries, he balances a book on his head and then he walks right. slowly and quietly to bed, puts himself to sleep and then sets an alarm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, not, I, that's not what my kids do. I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, it's so funny. Like every month 
probably at least once a month, I find myself, yeah, Dan was right about this, or Dan was right about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, it's been funny seeing all these things come to fruition that you warned me about for years. Right, right. So, yeah, it'll be it'll be a whole new adventure with the second one coming. And it would have been, you know, I just was hoping for a healthy, happy baby. But uh, having another boy, you know, I always wanted a brother growing up. So it's kind of cool to know that Everett will have a brother and they'll be able to, you know, adventure the world together and be best friends and worst enemies and you know all that brother stuff so i am excited about that sister ever getting like big fights you know not super bad there was a like we were great when we were kids and then when i was in like late junior high and she was just about to start junior high we had a period where i was like just like a an asshole to her um just I knew how to push her buttons to really irritate yeah. her all the time, and I got a lot of joy out of that. So that was <laughs> <laughs> that was a period. I just I found it really funny to make her cry when we're like driving to school or whatever because I knew I could like, but she'd get mad at the stupidest thing. Like I was breathing too loud, or I was eating my food too loud, or stuff like that. And so of course I saw opportunity there and <laughs> and milked it. So right. one of the biggest fights that me and my brother ever got in was. I don't know. Did you ever have a Sega growing up? Uh, I never. Well, yes, I had the Sega. Was there a Dream something? Um, uh, that was the Nintendo Dreamcast or something like Dreamcast that. Dreamcast sounds right. Yes, I had. That was the first one I got, and then it was N sixty four. Gotcha. Okay. Well, anyway, me and my brother. Um, he's closer to your age than he is than to me. My brother's like five years younger than me, so we would play college football on the Sega mm-hmm. and he was always better than me, but I didn't want to ever have my record show on the stats on the game. <laughs> so with like one or two seconds left, if I was ever down, I would kick the, I would, I would kick the plug in out of the wall. <laughs> and then, So that stat would never show up and he would get so mad. Like he would charge me and try to fight me. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. It's like when I play, uh, xbox with my when he was like a 10 year old my nephew that's what he would do <laughs> so, <laughs> and so that's what 18 year old dan did <laughs> yeah, no, well that was like that was earlier i mean by the I time know, i graduated I by the time i graduated high school i think the first uh playstation was out maybe or maybe my first year in college anyway <laughs> yeah we got in some knockdown drag out fights over bill walsh's college football uh siblings good times good times um yeah, it's funny. I, that was a piece of news, the family piece of news. And then there's a whole other big piece of news that I want to talk to you about um, that I don't know if we should leave with this or if we should dive into your hunt. Uh, what What are you most passionate about right now, Dan? Like, do you just need to release the story of your Colorado elk hunt and your thoughts and your frustrations? Or do you want to simmer on that while hearing a little story from me and then get into it? Where's your, where's like your this emotional is- state? This is uh, completely up to you because the more I simmer, the more raw the actual Colorado trip and my thoughts on um, all the other stuff that kind of goes along with it while flipping through Instagram and Facebook will come out. So we can have uh, a somewhat censored version or we can get like the Eddie Murphy raw uh, raw type edition uh after you share your story <laughs> okay so, I, I want eddie murphy i want eddie murphy <laughs> so so with so that, share away mark all right so um we'll talk about my north dakota public land hunt uh maybe after your elk hunt but okay 
I do need to talk a little bit because on the last episode of the podcast, I shared an announcement, but you and I have not talked about this yet because I've been waiting to talk about it on air. So as maybe you saw on social media, we dropped a new project here that I'm working on with Meat Eater in which we bought a farm. Yeah. And I haven't got to tell you about this because we've been keeping it pretty hush hush and working on this thing behind the scenes. But all of the, the bullshit I've been doing this summer, where I was talking about being frustrated. This thing's not working. This thing's not working. This is breaking. This is failing. <laughs> it was mostly all happening on this new place that we are trying to trying to use like a showcase for private land conservation and small land management and stuff like that. And it's been kind of a disaster, but I haven't been able to fully share that with you and, and yeah. <laughs> articulate why it's even more stressful. So... So now it's this huge weight off my shoulders that, you know, we have this 64 acres of land here in Michigan that we are trying to turn into a cool little hunting property. Uh, but we are also trying to use as like a, as an education tool or almost even like an inspiration tool to show like, Hey, we can do some really cool things for the, the local area, for the local wildlife, for the, the water and the soil. There's a lot more you can do than just try to shoot Boone and Cracker Bucks on it. Um, yeah. So this is, it, it's like an exciting project that I'm excited for, and, and it's been fun. But, man, there have already been some epic fail stories, Dan, that I haven't got to fully flesh out. So it's just it's exciting that it's out there, and um, there's going to be much more to come on that front. You're going to have to – you're going to have to – if ever you decide to fulfill an act – uh, what's the word to, 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 God, I'm having a brain fart here. If you ever decide to come to Michigan, like you promised you would, <laughs> right, right. You're going to have to come and check this place out. Okay. I will. It's, uh, it's maybe not going to impress you from a buck standpoint. Um, up to this point, Dan, I still, I don't know if there's going to be anything like serious for me to hunt out there. It's not, yeah. it's not looking good right now. So if uh, I have to knock on a door to get permission to that piece, is that you or is that Ranella? <laughs> yeah. You know, go knock on Ranella's door. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's going to be a challenge. I thought, you know, I looked at a whole lot of things when we were going through this process of trying to find this property and trying to find the right little piece that would, you know, both be a great hunting property, but then also have the potential to, to experiment with a lot of these things. Um, and I think it has that, but right now on the deer side, like we are struggling. I don't have anything decent on trail camera yet. Um, now to be fair, we've been out there filming stuff like a ton so that has not helped, I'm sure. But uh, moral of the story is hunting season opens in like a week and a half or something like that. And it's a little unnerving. I don't know what we're going to have there. So it might be a real slow Michigan season for me if if half of my hunts or whatever are, are out there and if it's yeah. not improving. <laughs> well, you had the guys from Land and Legacy on Right. Yes. Th- those guys are some hardcore habitat experts. Yes. I'm going to say they're great. Now, one thing from following along on their podcast uh, that you learn is that this there, there's no overnight solution to increasing like quality deer on your property overnight. This is this is something that takes potentially years yeah. to to uh, accomplish. 
it's definitely a long-term project, that's for sure. And um, and I really like their philosophy on land management in general, and and I'm right. definitely taking a lot of the things that they talk about into account as we're thinking through this. You know, I I think they're one of the few resources out there these days in the deer hunting world that they're doing a really nice job of looking at this holistically, you know, mm-hmm. not just big bucks there. I love right. the fact they talk about pollinators and they talk about native ecosystems and they talk about yep. everything, upland birds, deer, the whole, the whole gambit. So, um, so I might even try to, uh, I haven't asked them this, but I might try to see if they can come out and take a look at the property someday and share their thoughts and, uh, knock out some, some cool content while we're at it too. So they'll, uh, they seem to be a good fit for what we're trying to, trying to achieve here. Absolutely. So, Absolutely smart, smart guys. Yeah. So that's, that's the farm news. Um, you can win a hunt. You want to win a hunt to come hunt with me? <laughs> I, so, so I was, I was thinking about this, you know, like when you guys were talking about, Hey, you could win a hunt with Mark Kenyon and yeah. Steve Ranella, whatever. And I'm just like, um, like been there, done bad, that. <laughs> like, how bad does your hunting situation have to be in order to apply for this hunt when you just admitted that there's hardly any deer we're shooting on this farm? <laughs> it's hey, that hunt's gonna happen next season, so it's gonna be oh, really good season. by then. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, it's all about you know if if we got this thing and it was loaded with big bucks right out the gate, then where do we have to go from there? Right. Right. There's, there's no story if that's the case. Right. So I would just want to win the hunt so I could see you in person again and how like you're slowly becoming a man. Every time I see a picture, <laughs> <laughs> every time I see a picture of you, your goatee just looks better and better and better. Well, you know, I just keep on rubbing Rogaine and pixie dust on it every morning <laughs> when I wake up. So it better be. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Uh, yeah. So, so that's, that's my Michigan private land stuff. Still knocking out a bunch of public land stuff this year, and I know you are too. So let's let's get into our hunt br- breakdown, I guess, of sorts. We'll start with our two hunts. We'll move on to the other guys. You had this big Colorado elk hunt you've been talking about all year. You've been dreaming about it all year. Been working your tail off leading up to it all year. Um, before we hear the step-by-step play-by-play of it, just what is your, what, like when you get back, when you got back from the trip and your wife was like, well, how'd it go? Like, what was your initial like vomit of how you were feeling about this thing? <laughs> yeah, man, it, I tell you what, you go into every one of these trips knowing that the odds are stacked against you, right? In, in that particular unit, I think the success rate on, and that's, this is a whole that is guns and archery combined and public and private combined. The average is an 11% success rate. Now, if I had to guess where we were hunting, you cut that success rate in half and I would put it at about 5% uh, of a success rate based off the terrain we were hunting, the, um, the, the part of the unit that we were hunting and just all the combination of things, uh, the odds are just way stacked against us. Right. So you look at something like that and based off statistics and odds, which I'm a, you know, I'm a numbers kind of guy, you, you almost come to the realization that based off those stats, you're not going to kill an elk for, you know, you're going to kill one elk every 10 years. Right. And so at that point, it kind just the, the statistics alone take a load off your shoulders and you can enjoy the experience a little bit more 
and yes, you're focused on going out and trying to kill an elk, but at the same time, you're, you're, you're working hard, but the, you kind of, you kind of understand that, you know, it's, it's probably not going to happen, but regardless, you work hard. So what does that mean? That, that means that when I got home, my wife said, how was your trip? Um, I said, it was tough, <laughs> but I had fun. Okay. Like that's, that's what I, that's what I said. Okay. That, that, that is a good way to wrap up a hunt. If you can have that attitude at the end of an elk hunt, yeah. that's, a, that's, that's pretty good. If you're going to come home without killing something, that's about the best you could ask for. Is right. to be able to say I that. mean, I love, I like, I love going hiking and someday my goal is to like hike some 14ers out in Colorado. Yeah. But so we did a lot of hiking <laughs> on this trip and we got to experience some really cool things like these views at 11,500 feet, 11,000. I think the highest we got one day was 11.6, right? And the elk were still above us. Jeez. Yeah. So we were, we were up pretty high. And when you get that high, you can see a long ways uh, off some of these, um, off some of these mountains and just sitting there eating your snack or your lunch, what, looking at these views, you just kind of forget about what you're actually there to do. And you're just, you just become this sponge of energy. I don't know. This is kind of some hippie talk, but I love it when you get hippie. Yeah, I know. But, but like <laughs> you, you just, all the stress in life just kind of goes away. You don't even realize what you're doing anymore. You're just kind of staring off. You're, you're, you're able to the vision you have just becomes so much more crisp and you can see the details in nature as opposed to, you know, right now I'm, I'm doing this podcast later on. I got to do some work. I look out my window, I see a tree, but when you're up there and you get the time to slow down and observe, you don't just see a tree. You see the leaves, you see the branches, you see the bark, you see the bird that's living in it. You see the grass that's growing up around it. You see, you see, the whole picture, but in much more detail. Yeah. And, and, and then another thing that I know you and I have talked about this in the past when recounting other adventures, but another thing I like about that kind of landscape, when you get up into a big wild place like that, especially when you get up high yeah. is you really realize how small you are. Oh like, man, you, that's like the, the best scale, feeling. The scale of everything is just so vast when you can see miles and miles and miles and miles and, and you're just this tiny little insignificant dot in a yep. massive ball of life and rock and dirt and trees. And yep. that is, that's a huge, that's a, I don't know. It's, it's a special thing to experience. So I absolutely know what you're talking about up there. And some that, people, some people really like the, the feeling of being big and in charge and, and having power. Like for me, I almost enjoy the opposite feeling when, well, unprofessional, I forgot to turn my <laughs> ringer off. Rookie so, move. Rookie move. But anyway, like just feeling like you're nothing. I get off, I get off on that, man. I, I, I don't know. It, it's something amazing. And I, I got to believe that not only does a big mountain landscape make you feel powerless, but probably elk in general do too, as <laughs> they often don't follow our plans, right? Right. Is that the story right. of what happened on this hunt? Did that just so, not turn out the way that you guys had seen in previous years? So last year, every day was cold enough to where we would come in and it was, it, it rained a little bit more throughout the hunt. So last year, 
Um, we were cold and we were wet. So we'd come in, we'd dry our clothes, we'd start a fire, we'd warm up. This year, we didn't even need a fire, right? It wasn't, it wasn't cold. There, it rained once a day, maybe, um, while we were out. But then, you know, by the time we got back to the cabin, we, uh, you know, it was hot. It was warm throughout the day. We'd go out and we'd do an evening hunt and, you know, just warm. So I think what, what happened and I'll, I'll walk through the first day here of the hunt and then the rest of the, you know, four or five days is kind of just one big giant day. So I'll, I'll, we wake up the first day of the hunt, you know, you're excited, right? I, I had all this energy. I'm just like, Oh man, we're going to hear a bugle today. It's going to be awesome. Me, my buddy Ryan and my new friend, John, uh, walk out of the cabin, walk, you know, we're, we're, st- we start at about 10 two. Okay. Can I ask you one thing before you wrap us or before you get going to the first day? Yep. How long had Ryan been hunting before this? Yeah. Right. So he'd been hunting a whole week and he wasn't in a cabin. He was in a tent. Right. Okay. And was he hunting the same area or a different area? Um, he was, he wasn't hunting the exact same area, but he was hunting, I would say, you know, there's a million acres of public land in this area. It's huge. So he was hunting about two miles west of where we were at on day, on my day one. Gotcha. So different elk probably. Yeah. Different elk. He had an encounter, him and a guy shot the same elk, but like they never found it. Yeah. That's a which, yeah, which sucks. So, um, they had a couple encounters for two days, but then they experienced the same thing that I'm about to talk about. Okay. Right. But, but anyway, so day one, right. Get out of the cabin. Um, this year we waited just a little bit longer. We weren't tromping through this deadfall in pitch black dark with our headlamps. Right. We were, um, we waited a little bit for a little bit of light just so it was easier maneuvering. And I think that really helped us get to our place faster. Right. So it's almost like we arrived at the same time that we would have last year because last year it took us longer. But this year, because of we had more light, we were able to navigate this. So we drop down to about 10,000 into a creek. We walk up this creek about mm, three quarters of a mile, maybe a mile. And then we get out of the creek. So we're talking about from the time we leave the cabin to the time we get out of the creek is about an hour. Then we have to climb up a real big, um, bench. So it's almost like straight up, just probably a hundred feet straight up just to get to the uh, place where we can start calling these, these benches and, and, uh, these avalanche shoots and these meadows that are up there where the elk typically hang out. So we set up just kind of a, a fact. My buddy Ryan had, uh, a watch and on this watch, it calculated, calorie loss, calories burned based off heart rate. And so every day that we walk there, you know, you're forcing yourself to eat breakfast. So you have some start to the day you're burning 500 to 700 calories just on the hike up to where we start calling. And so that just kind of of an idea of the terrain and how brutal some of these hikes can be just to, just to start hunting. So we get in position, we make a, a couple calls, nothing answers. Um, we're, we're starting off with some very light cow calling. We start off uh, with maybe one bugle and then we work our way a little closer to the meadow. We set up and boom, we hear a, a bugle, a 
a bull bugling, uh, probably about 300, 400 yards away from us. So we're like, what we learned last year was you go straight to them, you set up, you get in their face. And that's kind of how we found success last year and how Ryan and John had success earlier in the week, right? You get up into where they're at and you make it feel like there's another bull encroaching on their territory. And this is what's, this is what's worked for us, right? So we move in slowly bugle again. He bugles back. He starts to chuckle and he's going back and forth with us. We get close and then we're probably a hundred yards to 70 to a hundred yards set up away from this bull, but he's straight up onto another bench that's uh, above us, probably 50 to a hundred feet above us. Right? So he's got the advantage. We have the wind, but he's got the advantage as far as terrain, right? It's still the morning and the, the, the thermals are coming down out of the, off the mountain. And I get a chance to look at him. And this is the biggest bull that I have ever seen. I'm not going to say like on TV, but he was giant. I would put him and I'm, I don't know anything about elk, but I I'm just comparing him to what my buddy Adam shot a couple of years ago. And his bull was three twelve. You could have set th- that bull inside of this bull's rack. So we're talking about uh, like, uh, I'm going to say somewhere around a three fifty class bull, which is gigantic. He had big whale tails. His body is what was so impressive to me. He had that typical two-tone elk look, right? Where like the front of him is this dark brown and then the back end of him is kind of this lighter tannish color, right? Just an mm-hmm. absolutely gorgeous animal. Uh, he turns sideways and his, his beams just go all the way back, all the way back to his hind legs. I mean, just this very impressive bull and he starts going crazy, right? He's just bugling and chuckling and, and then we're working in on him. We set up and we think like there was a period of time where I thought he was coming down right towards me. So I was getting fired up and then all of a sudden he just shuts off. And so we're like, so we wait there probably another 30 minutes just to kind of observe these guys come back over to where I'm at. Cause I was flanking hard to the right and we see this meadow. And I said, okay, if uh, me and the guys started talking, okay, well here he is. Let's follow the terrain. Let's try to get above him before the wind switches. Cause it was a bright and sunny day. And, um, you know, we, we needed to get above him before the wind switch. So then we could call back down and work our way down to him. So we come out of this little thicket and we're now at the bottom of this avalanche chute. It's like a meadow slash avalanche chute from this past year. Huge avalanches were all over there because of the, the snow. And so we start working our way up. Wind's blowing right in our face, working our way up. And I look up into a chute and there's another bull, a smaller one. But I, I feel like these guys were all kind of in the same gang and not too far from where we saw the big dog. So we... We're, we're climbing up, look at him. And I say, okay, we got to go in case he sees us. How far is he? He's probably mm, 150 to 200 yards okay. away, but, but straight up this, aval- this smaller avalanche chute with a whole bunch of grass that they could eat and some pine trees where, well, long story short, they were bedding up in there. So 
we flank around, we go up this, this, uh, another shoot that paralleled it. We start calling a little bit, nothing, nothing, nothing. And so we work our way back down. And as we're working our way back down, we see three, three or four cows pop out of that original shoot that we were, that we saw this bull in and they run out. So I'm thinking to myself, maybe the bull went out first because while we were climbing, we couldn't see him or, uh, maybe he's still up there, but left the opposite way. So we climbed back down. Uh, we, I think we, we had, we stopped for a snack at about like 11, three or 11, four, you know, really high up there and come back down and we're like, okay, well, when this wind switches and starts going up, uh, we'll just, we'll just sit here and we'll glass and maybe they'll, they'll work their way through. Well, this is now, this now becomes the story of the entire, entire week, right? We had, this is a, a North facing slope of the mountain range. Okay. So we're on the, we're on the North facing slope. We had a North front come coming in, uh, that week. So the wind was predominantly out of the North, which was fighting the downwind, uh, thermals in the morning. So I'm sitting there, we're glassing and I'm watching this piece of fuzz come off this drainage. It must've been a tree that had like little seeds on it or something. And it just comes floating all the way down the mountain and connects at the bottom of this drainage that we were in to the chutes that were going up to where the elk were. And I watched this, I watched this piece of fuzz float all the way down to where these chutes. And then it takes a hard right and goes straight up that chute. So I turn around to the two guys that we were with. I go, Hey guys, I just watched this. These elk know we're here and they're not responding. They caught our scent. They're either gone or they're just done. Right. They're not going to respond to that, especially when they're getting a, a huge nose full of us. Yeah. So the reason that they were there is because they could just smell everything in the area. I mean, the wind was just going crazy. And to be honest, that was the story of the entire hunt. Right. We were fighting shifting winds. The thermals were not consistent. Last year, the thermals were up. They were coming down at 10 30, 10 o'clock. They would switch and go straight up. And that is the that is what it did every single day. This year, well, there was one morning, it was still somewhat dark out. The wind was coming down off the mountain. I'm I'm gonna go sit at a wallow or climb up so I can glass this bottom of this meadow. But at about seven o'clock, the wind shifted and started coming back up because the prevailing wind was pushing those thermals, the downward, downward uh thermals away. And so you couldn't even, you, you couldn't fight it. You couldn't, you couldn't fight these winds because it was just like a, a pendulum just whoop, up and down all day, up and down. There was no consistent wind all day long. And, uh, it's hard to set up on an elk or try to get into a calling sequence. Um, when, you know, when you're fighting that and there was a full moon that week too. So it's almost like the, the odds were stacked against us. Inconsistent winds, hot weather, and a, a full moon just it just seemed like they were quiet. The quiet and very high. So they got your wind after that encounter. And what happened the rest of the trip, though? Did, did you ever see or happened. hear him again? 
nope, we didn't see another elk. We didn't hear another elk. Um, we, we found some fresh sign. We found some good bed, like good bedding areas, um, in some different meadows. Uh, we hiked up to different parts of the, uh, mountain, you know, searching this, this vast expanse of, uh, land and they were quiet. Um, my buddy Adam and his brother, uh, they, they peeled off a different day and they had an encounter with three, uh, five by fives or six by fives. I can't remember three or six by sixes came out of this one little thicket and a guy drew on them. But I think that was more of, Hey, we got, we happened to just get straight lucky on being here. They, they came in dead quiet. There was no bugling or anything. And that was an evening hunt. So they saw some bulls, but didn't get a opportunity on them. And I mean, I wish I had some more, I mean, I saw two bear dens, that was kind of cool. Didn't cool. see a bear, but saw two bear dens. Um, I saw these gigantic avalanche uh, paths that where the avalanche broke away from the mountain and just flattened like hundreds of acres of trees. Wow. Um, but as far as the hunt was concerned, it just became a hiking expedition at that point. Yeah. So did you have like a plan B? Did you have like a another area you considered moving to or, or was it like, we, this is our spot and we got to, I don't know. Well, was there any alternative yeah, we, to what you guys did? Yeah, we moved. I mean, we moved around. We went to that place two miles West. We went, uh, to different, uh, you know, to different drainages, uh, within that big. So like there's, there's one big drainage and off these drainages there's several small drainages. So we worked all those, right. Nice. And then we would head West and we would go high and then we would work some, lows. But so I had guys hitting me up on Instagram and they're just like, man, we're out in the same unit as you are. And there is nothing happening, like nothing. So it's very hard to call in number one in this, this dark timber deadfall, you can get in there and you can try to sit and quietly call them in, but you can't call them in if this wind is swirling all the time. There, there's no way that you can set up on an animal like that, that relies on its nose for survival when the wind is one minute blowing towards them, one minute blowing away, and then it's left and then it's right. It was just, it was nasty. Huh. Yeah, that's frustrating. Yeah. Yep. Was there, was there anything then like in your postmortem, like when you're, the hunt ended, you're driving home. And you're like, you know, I'm sure you're like me and you're stewing on it to some degree. At some point in that drive, you were thinking through what happened. Was there anything that you looked back on where like, man, I wish I did this differently or I wish I hadn't done that? Or like, was there a mistake or something you could point to that you would have changed if you could? You know, not really. And I'll tell you why. It's because this wind, you know, of all the things that you can control, I could control my physical fitness. I can control where I hike and how far I hike in, but I cannot control the wind. And when the wind is like, you're just at the mercy of nature at that point. Right. I, yeah. I, I feel like I prepared good for this hunt. Uh, we, we did everything we could to put ourselves in position. I mean, we were dropping out of one drainage going over peaks and I think the highest we got was probably 11, five or six, maybe one day where, uh, we dropped down into this Creek, went almost straight up 
the other way. I mean, if people want to go look at the pictures on my Instagram page to see how steep of terrain we were, we were at, I mean, we were damn near to tree line some days and just, and I'm telling you, the hiking was brutal, but we did everything that I feel we could to put ourselves in position. But when that end position where you're calling is just swirling with wind and they're not responding. I mean, we weren't even hearing bugles several miles away. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's not only is that just hard to hunt, but coming from knowing that experience is also just very disheartening because a a big part of what you dream about and look forward to when you're thinking about an elk hunt, tell me if you're different, but for me, like so much of what you're excited about is to hear the bugle. Like that's the thing is to like be out there in the woods and hear these bugles and be chasing them down. And when that's not happening and when it's just a quiet hiking trip, just because the expectations are so off that itself can like kind of put a real damper on things. Yeah. Um, you're like, dang it. I really wish they were talking. Why aren't they talking? God, we just need to hear one. Like I'm sure right. that was popping in your head. Like it does to oh, me. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we heard one bugle, at least that would allow us to go out and think of a strategy to try to, you know, intercept that bull. But yeah. we didn't, I, t- I tell you, I take it back. There is one thing that I wish I would have done different. And that was that first encounter on that first day. We knew where this elk was for about 30 minutes, right? We had this, this 30 minute exchange with him. I didn't do it because I didn't want to screw up the other two guys that were in my group. But if I wish I would have just flanked even harder and went up the mountain and cut, cut off, cut him off silent and then let those guys continue to call and maybe he would have went down to them or maybe he would have done what he he did and and went somewhere else but at least I would have been up at his same level to where maybe I could have got a shot at him or I could have did like a a soft cow call and change his mind to come maybe back to my direction right so put him in the middle of us and I didn't do that because I didn't want to I couldn't communicate with the other guys because I was probably 70 yards away from where they were at 80 yards away. And I didn't want to, um, I don't know, blow an opportunity that these guys had been working at real hard all week as well. So, uh, if I would, if that ever happened again, I probably would have just snuck in to his level and maybe tried to backdoor him while he's focused on their calling. Uh, but at the same time, there was another bull up there. There was another cow up there. So what I've learned is you have to be aggressive, but aggressive can bite you if you're not, if you, if you're a little bit too aggressive. Yeah. I mean, it's just like whitetail hunting, right? Like there's a, there's a fine line in between being aggressive and being too passive and you need to know how to strike that balancing act and when to push it one way or the other. And I'm sure that's something, and I've, I've experienced it too, when it comes to elk hunting, you, that, that whole balancing act is something you have to relearn when moving from whitetails to elk. Right. And that's the thing. I mean, you can't glass. I, I picked up my binoculars two times in, in five days. That was it. Just so and thick it, there? It's so thick. It, it's dead. It's, it's dark timber deadfall with a couple shoots and you don't necessarily, I wasn't looking to pick out a specific bull. I was going to shoot any legal elk cow, calf, you know, uh, a bull that had, uh, I think it's a four by four or it's a four by four, or it had like eight inch brows. 
right? So it gotcha. could have been a spike with eight inch brows. Those are a legal animal. I was going to shoot the first legal animal that stepped out and never got, never got that. <sighs> Do you feel like your physical prep was on point? You know, I think it was, um, I was still the caboose out of the trip, out of the, out of the group, <laughs> the right? Caboose. Every train needs a caboose, <laughs> right? I was a couple steps. I mean, these guys were out here, to, uh, you know, six days before I even showed up. So they had already been acclimated. They'd already, you know, they're getting used to it. Their, their legs are, um, you know, for, for me, it was the first three days, three and a half days, my legs were toast, but then day five hit and it's is the, the last day of the hunt. I felt like a mountain goat. I felt really good climbing up and down the mountains. Uh, I was recovering quickly. My legs weren't tired, but, uh, you know, that altitude still gets you right. And, right. uh, I didn't get, I didn't, I was recovering quickly. It's just, you can't beat the mount. You can't beat the mountain, man. You can't beat the air at that, at that elevation. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that is always a big challenge every time you take on a hunt like that. But I, I think the cool thing about this was, I don't know how you act, but you get nervous almost before this hunt. So like driving out there, I was nervous. I was just like, oh man, this is going to suck. This is going <laughs> to, this is going to suck. It's I'm, my legs are going to be toast. I'm going to be breathing heavy. But what that did mentally to me was it was preparing my body for the worst possible conditions. So when I actually got out there, it still sucked, but it su it sucked less compared to what my mind was telling my body was going to happen go. to it. That's good. Right? <laughs> so, but, but overall, man, like I said, I can't complain because I don't get to see those views. I don't get to experience that every single year or every day. And, uh, I was happy with what happened. I got to see some good friends. I got to, you know, go hike in the mountain. I got to chase elk and I got to at least hear a couple bugles, hear some chuckles. The only thing that this has me thinking about is I'm not to the point where I'm only after a, a bull. I'm after an elk. So this terrain that we're hunting at is, is brutal. It's, it, I mean, it is, it's thick when you're, when you're having to climb over three or four trees stacked on top of each other type of deadfall. And you're doing that while trying to hike. I mean, it is, it's not, it's not cool. It's, it sucks. So it has me thinking about if I put this same amount of energy in, in a different unit or a different state or a different, you know, area or whatever, will that increase my odds of getting an elk? Like maybe a little bit less terrain, uh, but I put in the same amount of energy. Will it, will it, I don't know. It has me thinking about things like maybe this area and this unit isn't the best unit I need to be in right now. Yeah. I can re relate to that. There's yeah. There's some big bulls out there, but I don't care about the big bulls. I want to kill an elk. An elk and yeah. when an elk is fit already, 1500 feet above you every morning. I got no problem hiking that. But then when you're hiking over deadfall and you're, you know, it's just like every step you take to get higher puts them at a, an advantage. Cause it's almost like they know you're coming. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe we need to return to our old spot in, uh, in Idaho where there was, there were elk, the terrain. I mean, it's challenging in a different way, but, yeah. um, 
at least I'm assuming based on what you're talking about, Colorado, comparing that to this one. Um, I don't know. I've been, I've been, yeah. I've been thinking that same question though. It's like, okay, I, I want to elk hunt again. Do I go back to the old faithful spot or do I keep exploring new areas and trying to find something that, that's better? Um, I don't know. I don't yeah. know what the answer is. Now you, you, uh, you talked about going Eddie Murphy. You haven't gone Eddie Murphy yet. <laughs> <laughs> you seem, you seem so calm and placid and at peace with how your right. hunt went. Uh, where's the rage? What are you angry about? Or did, did you come down <laughs> so off of that? <laughs> this is, this is, this is, you know, we all have kind of a hypocrite side of us, right? We also, we all kind of have this little asshole side of us, right? I mean, maybe you don't. Some have bigger I'm, assholes than others. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I know I do. I'm like, I, so, and I know you get, people get bone envy, right? You get envy. You're flipping through Instagram. You're, you're looking at the success other people have had. And I'm, I don't know who, who I'm following or not necessarily, but you know, I, oh my God, this guy slammed a giant bull. That's awesome. And then I'm, I'm, I start to read the story, right. Of, or the text in the Instagram post. I'm like, oh, this bull, you know, huge shout out to this outfitter or Mm -hmm. this guide service. And I'm just like, I busted my fucking balls physically and mentally for five straight days and didn't, I saw, I had the closest an elk was to me was 70, 80 yards. Right. And so the asshole part of me is like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to justify to myself why I didn't get this done. Uh, You know, like, I don't know, just, just, just being a a creep, I guess. So (laughs) I, I go to the outfitter that I go to their website and I see that this, these people killed an elk and they also killed a mule deer while they were out there. Right. I think they might've taken away two mule deer actually. And so a mule deer hunt cost like 13 or $14,000 An elk hunt was more like 17 or $18,000. So just for those two people to harvest this buck, and I don't know what their business dealings were, but it would have cost me or anybody listening to go to that outfitter. It would have cost them $30,000 to kill one mule deer and one elk or not even kill, but just go on that hunt. Oof. Yeah. $30,000. $30, and you know, the people that do that, that go on that, not now, I don't want to say those people because I don't want to generalize too much, but it's reasonable to think like if a TV personality goes and does that kind of hunt, they're probably also the the TV personality that's booked seven more hunts like that across oh, the yeah. rest of the country for other stuff too. So imagine yep. that times seven. Right. Right. So now you're looking at like, and I'm sure they flex their, their popularity muscle. Right. And they say, well, Hey man, this will do this. will you give me these hunts and I'll promote your prep, your company wherever I go this year or whatever. Right. So maybe they get, uh, an additional, you know, some selections because of what they do. I mean, that's what we do. Right. So that's where I become a hypocrite is, um, I don't know. I just, it's, it really, it's really hard for me to congratulate someone when, yeah, they probably still had to get out of a truck and walk to this, but it's like, it's everything set up. They have people watching these elk all year round. They have people watching these mule deer. They already knew when these people came into camp, where they were going to go, what animal they were going to go target. And, um, again, this is me just being a prick. 
you know, bitching, bitching about this. But, uh, so whenever I see a guy on public land who gets it done, just like what I was doing, kudos to them, man, because they're, I know they're grinding just like I'm grinding. And, uh, you know, if you're, you know, an East coast guy, or you actually live out West, I don't know. It's just, I, I lose any type of interest you know, it's about experience and it's about the story. So as soon as I hear that, that in their story that we had to use this service, then I, and it cost, it would cost me this much money to have to go experience what they experienced. I lose interest in it. And I say, I can't relate to that. And I just, I don't even care anymore. Yeah, man. And, and I will just add without even commenting or critiquing what the other people, you know, choosing to do that. It just, to me, seems like it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be the experience that it wouldn't be the same experience. The experience that you had, even without killing bull, I would argue is a richer, more fulfilling experience, even than those folks that did shoot one. Right. Now right. I'm not, I don't want to, you know, this isn't a blanket statement, but, um, keep on, I'm always going to want to just keep on grinding, doing it on your own. Yeah. Cause I think when it does every once in a while come together, it's just that much more right. powerful. Right. And here's where it becomes uh, like, it, you start to walk this gray line at some point because I hunt public land or I hunt private ground in Iowa, but I'm knock on the door. I get permission. Right. Now, if I go out west and I get permission on a piece of property, let's say, do I become a hypocrite at that point? Because, you know, I'm not necessarily paying for a guide service or I'm not necessarily paying for something. Let's say I pay a trespass fee because a lot of places out west say, yeah, you can hunt my property, but you got to pay me uh, a trespassing fee to to go out there. I don't care what you shoot, but you're going to pay to be on my property. Is that the same thing or is it different? You know, I don't know. I don't even think we need to like be trying to like rank order what's the right, most right. way to, you know, like who are, who am I to, yeah. but I would yeah. say like I, at least for what I'm interested in, I'm always going to, I don't care if it's public or private, if it's, if it's whatever, but I'm always going to just want to do it myself. Like I, yeah. I don't care where it is. I just want to be the person doing it. I right. just don't like the idea of someone else telling me, oh, you got to hunt here, or I put this stand here, hunt this, or we know the bucks here, go there. I, I just want to figure it out myself. That's For me, that's what I get the enjoyment out of, and I get the fulfillment after having completed a hunt, whether it's successful or not. I just want to do it. I want to struggle through it. I want it to be a challenge. I want it yeah. to – that is the experience that – I don't know. Right. For me, and- it's just you, you need that – struggle and like that work to make it a real experience. Right. And the more I get into this style of hunting, right? Cause this, uh, I got this South Dakota mule deer hunt coming up. The less I give a shit about any type of antlers, any type of antlers. I, I don't know. I, I think that the hunting community as a whole has been brainwashed over the years to think that in some way, shape or form, antler size matters in some, for some reason, don't get me wrong, Mark, I'll be the first to admit I like big bucks, like big antler bucks. They're (laughs) rare, but 
at the same time, I don't give a shit about a score. I don't give a shit about, you know, like if a guy, if a guy goes out and he kills a spike buck, uh, dude, kudos to that guy who went out and harvested the meat off that animal. He went out, he had fun. It's just, uh, I don't know, man. I just see it every day now. It's like the more I get into the Instagram and the more I get into the, uh, the business of the hunting industry, it just, it's almost like it's poison. Uh, hundred percent hear you. Uh, I so much more, at least for myself, it's, it's coming down to like the experience I want. And so are you having fun or not? Yeah. Like, are you having fun? I like setting goals. I love having goals. So, you know, like here on a Michigan property, I'm hunting, you know, my goal is I'd like to wait out for an older buck, but I'm I'm looking at age. Like I really want to shoot a four year old. Like that's the challenge and the experience I'm pushing for. But then I'm going to go up to Minnesota on a public land canoe and hunt and I'll shoot a spike or whatever's legal. Like I will shoot the first legal deer I see up there because I'm looking for an experience up there that, you know, is very different from the experience I could get in Michigan, which is very different than the experience. If I draw an Iowa tag next year, you know, maybe I'll be super picky next year in Iowa because it's the one time I'm going to hunt Iowa in five years and I want to extend and fully, you know, experience that. So right. I, I think we get too hung up, but I'm, I'm right there with you. Like I'm just as guilty as sometimes, you know, you see a big buck and you get excited about it. I mean, we yeah. can talk about that here in a minute. Like my North Dakota hunt, yeah. I very much saw a big buck and got my heart set on it and, you know, made a decision that maybe was a mistake because of that. Yeah. Um. So I don't think there's anything wrong to like, like you said, like appreciate, get excited about, have fun looking at and chasing them and dreaming about big bucks but it's, I mean, we've, we, for years on the podcast, we've talked about this. Yeah. It's just like, you can't let it go too far. Right. You can't let that become a poison. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you 
to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Yeah. I have one last thing to say about this Colorado trip. Tell me. And it is, I got to experience this with my dad. And he, we drove, uh, when I told him about this Colorado trip and that we were staying in a cabin and all this stuff, he goes, maybe mind if I tag along? He's retired. And I said, absolutely. So he drove out with me. We shared the responsibilities of driving out, right? We, um, just get to experience this crazy hailstorm coming out of Denver where it sounded like our, his truck was getting shot at. The <laughs> hail was like the size of small, you know, a little bit smaller than a golf ball, a little bit bigger than a marble. Uh, he came and he stayed at camp for two days, uh, two nights. And he was the camp cook for the group of guys that was there. That's pretty uh, sweet. Yeah. He, then he got to go do some experience, some things that he hadn't done in his life while I was hunting. He went to Mesa Verde and uh, checked out the cliff dwellings down there from the, the ancient native American civilization that was down there. Um, he went to Arches national park and he got to, uh, see, uh, the, you know, the stone configurations there. And then, you know, he got to go meet a high school buddy uh, that he hadn't seen in a while on, uh, on the way back through Nebraska. So, and just experiencing this with him and my dad's not necessarily, a, he's not a hunter or he's an outdoorsman. He loves to camp and hike and stuff, but I don't know. I just, I, I loved that part of the trip more than just about anything else. Yeah, that is, that is really, really cool to be able to share that with him. Yep. That's awesome. Yep. Yep. So let's talk about you now, buddy. Enough yeah. about me. North Dakota. Yeah. Further, right? No, solo. No further. Solo. Solo. Oh boy. Yeah, solo. So drove out at the end of August, solo. It's about a two-day trip out there. It's like 19 or so hours. Um, And so I left in time to be able to get there the night before the season opened to try to do a little scouting. Yeah. So I, I, I had hunted, sort of hunted this place once before. We talked about it last year. Like I showed up after Josh had been there hunting for like four days and I showed up and scouted one night and one morning. And based off what Josh had been seeing and what I saw during that day of scouting, I decided we should pull the plug and go somewhere else. So that's my only hunting experience here is basically glassing a night in the morning. And then Did we you also shed hunt this spot. Yes. We shed hunted okay. and scouted one spring. Gotcha. So I came into this with a couple pockets picked out that I thought would be worth exploring and um, worth hunting. And I wanted to, you know, this is an area where you can get up high and you can glass down these river bottoms and you can, you, you can see a lot, or at least you think you should be able to see a lot. Right. So I got there the first night, went to the first pocket. I hiked into this big bluff, got on top of a bluff, looked down into this bowl alongside of a river with a bunch of cedars and cover in there. It looks great. And I saw a decent number of deer. I saw more deer that night than I saw all of the scouting that I had been out there the year before. So I was feeling pretty good about it. I was excited, but I didn't see like a mature buck. So for the next morning, opening morning, I thought, all right, I'm going to move to another area, another one of the spots I had picked out. I'll glass that in the morning, just see if that's any better. And then I'll be able, I'll know that I've seen these two areas. I can pick whichever seems like more promising and then hunt opening night. 
So the next morning, I'm up on a different bluff several miles away from this original spot and seeing deer, seeing deer. And then, I don't know, like an hour and a half, maybe after daylight, I spot like a, a, a deer silhouetted in a strip of cottonwood trees. And I zoom in with a spotting scope and I see it's a good buck. Like it's a really good buck. Definite shooter, um, definite mature buck, big, tight, tall, 10 pointer, still in full velvet. Um, I don't know, 140s, maybe high 140s. Awesome. I mean, like just everything was like amazing public land buck. Yeah. So I'm really excited. I watch him for, I don't know, half hour. He's kind of milling around this little area and then walks off and beds down. So right away, I'm like, okay, I'm, this, is, this is where I'm hunting. I'm going to try to kill that buck. Like I found a target. That's all I needed. And uh, now it's just about playing this game, trying to get this buck. And I'm looking at Onyx, though, and I see he is bedded on private land. There is a little strip of private that went into the middle of this public. And his little tree line that he's bedded in just so happens to be in that strip of private. Public land butts up to like 80 to 100 yards of him on either side. But there's like 150 to 200 yard wide strip that he's in that I can't hunt. So that's where I'm at. Uh, the first evening, so that was the morning, I'm you know, shot my bow, got all organized, got all cleaned up, got ready for that first evening hunt, slipped down into the river bottom, trekked in through a river, crossed a river, followed a river for a ways, hopped up and then just slowly worked my way. And my, my game plan was based off the wind. The wind was blowing from the bedding area to the, to the North. It was like a southerly wind. And I basically said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I can't get right on him. So I'm just going to get as close as I possibly can with the wind being safe and watch how he comes out of there. And then okay. hopefully like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to see how he comes out of there. I, I assumed he'd be coming the way he came from in the morning going that way, but I couldn't like, I couldn't get on the intercept path because of the private land. So I couldn't hunt him doing exactly what he did that morning. So I thought the best case scenario would be watch, get a better idea of how he leaves here, adjust in the morning. So I get set up, climb up into a tree that gets me as close as I think I can get without him seeing me. Cause basically this is like relatively open grassy stuff with these little strips of cottonwoods. And yeah. he was in one strip of cottonwoods and I'm in then there's a, then an open grassy meadow and then another strip of cottonwoods. So I got to that other strip of cottonwoods. I didn't want to get to the very outside edge of it because I was afraid if he was just better there watching, he could see me. So I tried to keep just enough cover in the way and, and actually almost crawled up to this tree Got up in the tree and I'm up there and I realize there's way more. There's there's one set of trees in front of me and I just could not see where he was bedded well enough from there. I just I wouldn't be able to see right where he was bedded. I could see one side of it if he came up that way, but if he stood up and headed directly the opposite direction, I would never know it. So I'm all set though. I'm sitting up there for five minutes. And I'm like, oh my god, like it really looked like it was gonna be a lot better than this, and it's not. Um, Were you too high? It wasn't even. It was just like. I, I'm having a hard time remembering exactly why I thought this spot would work, but I think maybe I thought I could get higher maybe to get above. Like yeah. there's one tree in front of a small like, shrubby tree that I thought I'd be able to see through or past. And I definitely wasn't too high. If anything, I was too low and I didn't have enough, another climbing stick. So for whatever reason, like, I, I just could not see the this angle I needed well enough. So after a couple minutes, I decided, you know what? Forget it. What's the point of being here if I can't see that spot? So I pulled everything down got back on the ground and was going to move up to one more tree. And then I realized, you know what? I can actually see best just right from the ground. Um, 
and all I really care about, I don't really think I'm going to kill that buck here tonight. I really just need to observe. Like This is more a scouting session with hopefully an opportunity if I got lucky, but really just got to be seeing it. So I found a little knob of grass and some shrubs on either side. I just tucked myself into this tall grass with a shrub on either side and behind me and just got hunkered down on the ground. Great spot. I could, I was able, because like, there was this knob, I was sheltered. I could crawl up to it from behind it. And if that buck was, you know, 80 yards away in front of me, he'd never see me. And then I could just stay right behind that knob, but I can slowly rise up and see everything. So that's my scenario. The wind's great. I can see a great area. I know exactly where this buck was bedded. Um, and I set up for the evening. Sat there, sat there, saw Doe Fawn come out. And she leaves. If you imagine, like, I, I've talked about these two strips of cottonwoods. There's a strip of trees that he's right. in. And then my strip of trees kind of meets at a V at the bottom. And in that V where those two strips of cottonwoods come together is like a grove of aspen trees and, and shrubs and just a real little thicket area. So these deer are all popping out of that. So Doe and a fawn pops out of that, enters the meadow in between me and him and runs across the meadow right at me, stops right in front of me like 30 yards and then kind of feed on some kind of forb that's in front of me about 30 yeah. yards. So the Doe and fawn does that. And then a little buck does that. And then another small buck does. I'm like, oh man, all these deer are leaving this bedding area and coming right to me. Um, and when I say it was probably between 30 and 40 yards away. Um, and then here comes a buck like running right at me. And I look at him, I'm thinking decent buck. And then I'm thinking, is it the big buck? And that's no, it's not. It's a small eight pointer. So then I, you know, I, I let myself down and it's okay. What's behind him? Is that big buck coming? Like this is this has got to be a big bachelor group. That's got to be the guy. So this eight pointer runs in front of me, stops like thirty five yards, starts feeding. He's in really tall grass, like up to his head. Um, I can still see him, like I said, probably thirty five yards or so. But I'm just watching for the other ten pointer. I'm watching, watching. Look at the eight. He's still there. Watching for the ten. Watching the ten. Look at the eight. I'm like, God, that's not a bad buck. Um, I pull my binoculars. I'm looking at him like, geez, he looks like he's probably three or four. Um, I turn back, look for the 10. I look back at the eight. I'm like, man, I'd probably shoot that buck any other time. And I look back for the 10 and I look at the eight. I'm like, should I try to shoot this buck? Like he's in range. If I stood up and took a couple steps around the shrub, I could probably get a shot at him. Um, then I look back for the other buck. And then I just kind of decide, you know what? It's the very first night of the hunt. It's there's still like an hour and a half of daylight left. I'm right here. This buck should be standing up any minute now and coming my way. Um, we're coming somewhere then I can adjust. So I decided not to try to shoot this nice eight pointer. He was a nice eight pointer. Like really he'd be, he'd be a good public land buck any other day. Chose not to try to shoot him. Wait out the rest of the night. Another couple hunters show up. Now they're above me up on the hillside, but they're glass in the same area. I'm glassing. And, uh, then they disappear. They move off somewhere else. But there's another couple hunters in the zone now. And I'm like, ah, crap. Are they going to spook this buck? What's going to happen? Fast forward, though, I don't know what happened. The big 10 never showed up. The big 8 walked away. And I saw no other deer. And that was my first day of the hunt. I saw the big 10 in the morning. Saw a nice 8 in the evening. Uh, passed on him. Now, kind of like your hunt, the next four days all were kind of like one big day. <laughs> From that point on, I was just bouncing as the wind changed. I would try to hunt around this zone where these two bucks came out of as wind would allow. And they just, nothing. 
I never saw the good bucks again. I saw a couple deer here and there, little bucks, you know, passed on a little year and a half old, little two and a half year old, some does. Um, but never could see a decent buck again after that point. I was working a river inside great access. I would walk into the river and literally walk for an hour and a half following a riverbed in the water and then just hop up a bank, climb into a tree right there. I mean, it had a really good in and out, um, good wind. Like, I don't think I was busting these deer and there was just, just could not find them again. So I don't know if those other hunters were in there in this basin with me hunting too and had spooked the deer. If, if they caught my scent or if they'd walked past me, past where I'd been walking and caught my, caught my scent or what, I don't know. But over the next couple of days, I could not find them again. I, in the mornings, since I wasn't on them, I just glassed in the morning from observation spots, couldn't find them. I eventually on day four went over to a plan B, went back to that other spot I scouted, hunted there, found that there was another couple guys camped out hunting that zone. Took one day to get to that spot. Took me a two hour hike to get into it. Oh yeah. It, longest hike I've ever taken. And it wasn't like distance as it wasn't two hours long as far as like, I wasn't walking full speed for two hours, but it was the fact that you had to get into the river and I had to slowly wade through the river forever to try to get to the spot without spooking deer. Um, so that was very demoralizing when I saw only one deer that whole night for like two seconds. Um, and so I, I, I moved, moved, pivoted around, you know, for five days and just could not find a single good deer again, could not establish any kind of pattern. Like these deer, it's, it's much thicker than it looks from up high from up high. It looks like, Oh, it should be pretty open. But when you get down at ground level, the covers all the way up to like the top of the deer's heads in many cases, yeah. um, there's not a ton of deer. There's no established food source. There's kind of bedding everywhere. So like every deer I did see, you'd see it pop up and it would kind of mill around and then just move off in a random direction. There was never like an establishment. Okay. These deer are bedded in this little pocket and they leave that pocket and they head West towards a food source. No, it was like one deer would come out from the pocket and he'd head West. Then I'd see another deer pop out like behind me from some other random little patch of grass and he'd head North. And then I'd see one other deer pop out from the river an hour later and he'd head South. And that was the case for five days. You'd see like two deer a day. They do different things and there just never ended up being something I could key in on. There was no pattern. There was no consistency. It wasn't like the herd had a pattern. It was almost like individual deer at that point had their own pattern. Yeah. And, and it was, there was just never anything I could latch onto and never sighted one of those good bucks again. And so by the time it got to day five, It'd been four days without seeing the decent buck. Um, I had one other plan C pocket that I thought I was going to hunt and there ended up being other hunters there too. I saw a truck driving in and out. So now I'm thinking, man, does it even make sense to try to even go fiddle around with that? And then checking with the wife, hear that Everett's sick and not feeling good. She's not getting any work done. That's not going well. And I'm sitting here thinking, man, I have nothing to work with. My next plan for this next hunt is I'm just going to go in and like still hunt. I was thinking at this point, maybe I should just walk around and try to bump something, get lucky or go to a completely different area, like pull up camp and drive an hour and go somewhere completely different where the ideas I was considering for the last day. So I had this really stressful like hour in my truck where I'm thinking like back and forth, what should I do? Do I stick it out as long as I originally thought I should another day? try something off the wall and just like keep trying. Cause I, I hate the idea of packing up and leaving. 
On the other side of me, I'm thinking, man, you had two days of travel. Get out here. You've hunted five days. You got another two days of travel. That's being away from the family for nine days. You have no real hopes of killing something. It'd be just a blind. It'd be simply just persevering because you want to persevere. It's not like you really, really, really think you're going to get it done. And so I had like this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I ended up deciding to go home, chose, try to get back for family. But I, to be honest, like I had, I felt crappy about that. I'd feel probably crappy about either decision I made, Yeah. but I felt like, am I giving up on the hunt? Am I quitting on this before I should? Like, did I need to push through the advert? If I pushed through it and hunted that one more day, maybe it would have came together. And so the whole drive home, I was like back and forth, back and forth. Like on one side, I felt good, like prioritizing my family and getting back. And it was already a long hunt. It didn't feel like a long hunt because I didn't get to hunt that much, but the travel made it so long. Yeah. Um, and I just like, I just felt like the place beat me again. And the biggest thing was like, I felt like the place beat me last time because I couldn't figure it out and Josh couldn't figure it out. I really believed that I could figure it out this time and it, and it didn't happen. Um, so that was like my conundrum, my conundrum coming out of this hunt. I had two things, two like question marks or, or lessons learned or debates, internal debates. The one debate was the decision at the end, like the decision to pack up camp. It's like this decision between, I always talk about the importance of pushing through the adversity and, and keeping at it. You want to leave it all in the field. That's something I really believe in. And, and so one part of me said, like, you kind of bailed, like you didn't, yeah. you didn't go to the very end. The fat lady wasn't quite singing. You could have stayed another half day or three quarters of a day or whatever. So one part of me says like, dang it, Mark. Yeah. The other side of me says, no. You put your family through this, you know, it was the right decision, even though it didn't turn out from a hunt standpoint, you made the right decision to get back and help your wife and, and all of that. So that was like a, a, a thing that I kept debating about in my head, my two sides, my, the family side of me and then the hunter side of me. And, and, and I, I think ultimately it was the right decision because I do need to prioritize my family that I'm glad I did that. I'm glad I came home. Yeah. I'm glad I was able to help out. But then there was the other side of me, like the hunter side of me it was like, damn it, Mark. You didn't leave 100% of the field. You left 96 or whatever it was. And so that still had that little whispering down in my head. That was my conundrum number one. And then my conundrum number two was the first night hunt. I've never had this happen before where you get a shot at a deer on the first night of a hunt and you're left with that dreaded situation where you're like, do you pass on something on the first night that you would shoot on the last day? And it happened to me this time. I passed on a buck that I would have shot the last day. And, you know, I don't know if I'm happy about that or not. If I, part of me says, I wish I'd shot it now looking back because then I would have had that buck and, you know, would have had a successful public land hunt and and it could have, you know, I kind of did figure it out, I guess. It was a little bit lucky or it was a good hunt, whatever. Um, But then part of me says it was the first night. You didn't know what was coming. You know, you wanted to have the full experience out here. You knew there was a really good, definitely mature 10 point buck that, you know, you wanted to see what what might have been possible. And so those are the two things that on that drive home were bouncing back and forth in my head over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, I think that with any out-of-state hunt, when you're hunting a time frame, the end of the hunt, there's this window, right? I, it's like a gray area, right? It's like there is the back end of that window, which is I cannot hunt any time past this because if I shoot something past this, then I have to process it. I have to clean it. And it's just going to take an entire another day for me to get home. And then at the beginning of that window is the, is this 
man, is it even worth me staying here anymore because the conditions are bad or there's no animals? Yeah. You know what I mean? So there's this window at the tail end of every out-of-state hunt that really almost tricks us, I feel, because I probably could have hunted another another evening, potentially another morning, but the weather conditions were going to do the same exact thing that they were doing the previous five days, right? So um, I backed down, I got home right? It sounds like you did, you did something similar. It's just, you know, more than anybody else that the weather, the weather conditions dictate more than anything, uh, whether or not some of these or, and time of year, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the movement, right? So if it's hot as balls uh, and these deer aren't moving until 30 minutes before light, or you can't find them, what's, what's to say that, they're going to do that on the fifth day or the sixth day of the hunt when you, you, you know, you could get home. Uh, I'm all about reading that the scenario and making a decision based off that. And I think that for me in the elk hunt, I, we decided to leave because it was just going to be more of the same for the next day yeah. uh, or two. And you did the same thing. Cause it was more, more of the same. Now anything can happen at any time yeah. in hunting, right? It's just that, you at that point it would be less strategy and skill and more luck yeah so do you think i made the right decision oh absolutely absolutely i think you did now what about the buck the first night did you see by chance the instagram story or the picture i posted of him yeah i saw it great deer um and that's why i said to you i didn't know he was kind of bouncing back and forth between private and public yeah you're talking about the original one i spotted yeah, yeah. The, the the one that you set up originally for, yep, right? Yep, yeah. Yep. Just that strip. I mean, it was a narrow strip that fingered into the larger chunk of public, and he just happened to be in that little strip. Yeah. Um, and so I was right on the edge of it. Um, See, when I when I heard that story, I didn't know that it was but buttoned up against private. So I was like, dude, you you have to go in there and make an aggressive move on him right now. Yeah. Um. And but you know when you you know, that there's that scenario. He was on private ground. You didn't have access to it. There's nothing you could do about it. You did the best thing that you could. Uh, other than that, it's just like when, when you're hunting a, a piece of property that you really don't know, or you're, you're kind of learning about, um, especially when you have limited time, I'm, I'm the kind of guy who's like, dude, just be aggressive, um, and try to try to get the job done like as soon as humanly possible. Because as we, we talk about on this podcast all the time, first time in best time in. Oh yeah. So would you have shot that eight pointer? Probably. Yeah, probably. Um, it just depends, man, because you can be, people can become blinded uh, almost. Uh, and I was blinded for like seven years when I was chasing that shipwreck buck, right. Or five years or whatever. You, you become blinded that the end goal is something and you're willing to do whatever it takes to get to that end goal. And whether it's, Oh man, the rut is cracking here. I just know I'm going to see this. I've seen, or not necessarily the rut just like deer movement in general, right? You're, you're seeing tons of good sign. You're seeing deer movement, you're seeing all these things and then it just shuts off. And then you, all you're left with is questions, whether or not you made the right decision or not. Mm-hmm. When, when it's hard for anybody to determine what, it, what's going to happen in the next minute or five minutes or five days. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's funny though. 
like, like there's like the end goal you want. So it's like, yeah, I want to kill a mature buck. Like that's the goal, let's say. And I could have killed that buck and he was probably three or four. And I could have said I killed a mature buck and I could have left there achieving my goal. But at the same time, back to what we were talking about earlier, this isn't necessarily like, I wouldn't have necessarily stated this as the goal on the front. But when I think about it, my goal is also to like have a certain experience and like killing a buck on the very first hunt, like an hour into the very first hunt out there, I think would be like a little bit of a disappointing experience too. Like, well, now what do I do? Like yeah. I came all the way out here. I didn't, I didn't have to do anything. I just watched a couple times and walked in here an hour and killed a buck. And now I'm going to turn around and go home. Like I probably would have been a little disappointed it, it, to a degree. I would have been like stoked. I killed the buck. I got the buck, but it would have also felt a little bit hollow in some way. Maybe like what I really want is what I really wanted was I wanted to hunt for four days. And on the fourth night after going back and forth, you figure it out and you kill your buck four days in or five days in or whatever it is. Like, that's what I really want. Let's say the ideal yeah. scenario. Um, so somehow I, I got, I got the end outcome that I wanted, but it arrived before the experience I wanted. And because they didn't match up, I didn't take advantage of it. And now yeah. I'm left wondering, like I got the experience. I got the five days of grinding it out and trying to figure out. I just didn't get the, <laughs> the end outcome that was given yeah. to me too soon. It's a weird thing. I've never, yeah. I've never had that happen. You always hear about it happen, but it, this is the first time I've experienced that. And I still don't know, you know, what, um, what the right call for me would have been. I made the call I made. So yeah, it's, it's funny uh, on a scenario like that. It, it has me thinking of are <laughs> like, are we really hunters? Because uh, I think of a hunter as a bobcat or a mountain lion or a lion or something like that, right? And they don't give a shit about anything except I'm going to feed myself mm-hmm. with, with that. And here we are out in nature with our bows saying, okay, you get the pass tonight, but you know, at the end of the week, if you come by again, I'm going to kill you. Or, right. hey, 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 doe group, you know, you're lucky this time. You know, I'm not going to shoot you this time. Uh, yeah. I just, I almost, thing. yeah, I almost feel like I'm moving away from like, I'm still going to go out and, and try to shoot some mature deer or, you know, something with some good antlers, whatever. But at the same time, I feel like I want to become this like ultimate predator, like this guy uh, down in Louisiana who's killed like 800 deer in his life. Like he doesn't care about maturity. He, he just shoots deer. Yeah. I mean, it's like a fine line. It's like, like we of course we want to have killed the animal get the meat but if all we care about is just killing shit then we could just go to the farm and like put a bolt through a cow's head 50 times a year whatever Ah, we you know did that like the meat is is once you like once you fill enough once you put enough meat in the freezer to feed your family um and you know you can do that every year by killing a few does um like the only reason to hunt in a different way then if you've yeah. established, you've got that baseline, it's then, okay, I want my meat, but I want my meat to have a deeper experience attached to it. Right. And that's and, the thing. And that's the thing. Is the experience. Yeah. And my experience is different than everybody else's experience and your experience and whatever. Yeah. And everyone's got different thoughts on what they want that experience to be and how it impacts them and how they go about it. And I guess, you know, it's like you said, it's different for everyone. And, and that's what, you know, makes this whole hunting thing kind of cool, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That is what happened to me. That is what happened to you. Um, I, listening to your story, having processed my story, 
Um, there's a few things already that, that, that kind of stand out to me as yeah. takeaways. What I want to do next is I want to chat with Tony and chat with Andy, hear how their hunts went. And they had the experience with the exclamation point at the end. Right. And I'm interested to hear what we can take from those two hunts and then kind of compare all the notes. So what I'm going to do at the end of this is kind of do a post-mortem of our four hunts and what the big takeaway, one or two things, if there's like a common, common moral of the story from everything here, I'm going to see if I can unpackage that and we'll wrap up the episode with that. So do you have any final thing you want to leave with Dan before, before I cut to that? Yeah. I wish you would do this in two different podcasts because it really sucks being on the same podcast with Andy May, who's like, <laughs> like Mr. Automatic, like the guy goes into any piece of property and kills something. You know yeah, what I no. mean? Like, and then there's, Hey, Dan Johnson, he looks at flowers and Oh, cool. A bear den, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> nobody, gave, nobody gives a shit. Right. Well, you know what they say is that if you're in a, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Right. So I think that can apply to like, if you're the best hunter on the podcast, you should be on a different podcast. You, we right. need to surround ourselves with better hunters <laughs> to push us, Dan. That's right. That's what we're trying to do here. So, okay. so <laughs> feel good about that. I'm in the same right. boat as you. All right. So now we are going to transition to the successful side of this podcast. And the first very successful hunter that I want to chat with here is Tony Peterson. Tony, Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, buddy. I love the fact that we're able to talk relatively frequently now, um, increasingly more this time of year, because every time it seems like uh, I get on the phone with you, you've got another buck on the ground. So <laughs> <laughs> we're we're counting on you, Tony, to show us how to get it done, because we just heard from myself and Dan, who both did not fill a tag on our September hunts. You, on the other hand, have filled enough tags for the both of us. Um, you killed a buck in Nebraska, right? And then just recently, yep. Minnesota. Was that opening day in Minnesota or the second day of the season? Uh, they were both opening day kills. Perfect. So let's start in Nebraska. This was public land, I think. Can you can you set us up? Like, what was your thought process going into it? How did you prep for that hunt, and and how did it all end up going down? Sure, man. So with Nebraska, I you know I found this spot that I hunted two years ago, turkey hunting, and we just we ended up just we were driving on through and saw a couple birds on this property. Turned around, started hunting it. You know, saw some deer sign, and so this spring, a buddy and I went down there to turkey hunt again and get a better feel for the the properties that were there and found some stuff and found some really nice cattle tanks and you know water hole situations and so i was kind of banking on that for you know i was down there last couple days of august and then into the first first of the september so you know the first of the day of the season and so you know you're kind of banking on it being 90 degrees every day i wasn't banking on you know typhoons all summer long putting water everywhere and it changed the entire pattern i mean i i had talked to a buddy who lives down in southern nebraska before we went i knew the water program was probably a no-go but after getting down there to scout for two days i realized it was going to be food or nothing and so it was it was a matter of switching gears from my primary plan to a backup and you know it's you're, you're talking beginning of september you're going to be talking food anyway i mean it's such a such a driver that time of year 
and I just happened to, I, I knew there was a one tucked away field on a walk-in ranch down there that had good potential if it was going to be beans or alfalfa. And as soon as we got there, I glassed that there was beans. And so I knew, you know, you've got several hundred acres with no food on it, you know, no destination food sources. And then you've got this bean field tucked in there. You knew there was going to be deer coming in there. And so that was kind of what kicked off our strategy down in Nebraska. So you found the beans and you mentioned something that was interesting to me. How, you showed up in late August and the opener wasn't until when? Uh, September 1. So, so we, we got how many days of scouting? Um, two full days. So I knew I, I, I would have preferred a couple more. I just couldn't swing it. And, but we had two full days to, you know, glass mornings, glass evenings, and then hike into spots in the middle of the day. And if you kind of divide and conquer like my buddy and I did, you can, you can figure a lot of stuff out. And so we, we did that. And it, I mean, it, that, you know, you, you talked about unsuccessful hunts. I mean, so much of that scouting is just eliminating places you're not going to hunt. You know, I mean, that's, Everybody thinks you walk in and you figure out, okay, well, I, I was on Onyx, I found this spot, and it's going to be money. And you walk in there, and for me, probably, I, I don't know, 60 or 70% of the time, it's just not right for some reason. And so it's a, it's just a matter of seeing a lot of those spots you mark and going, okay, this one's no good, this one's no good, this one's got potential. And we just, we got lucky getting to that bean field before anyone else. And we found one other spot that I had turkey hunted when we... We walked in there. There was a fresh stand and a camera there that somebody had driven in. But we also had a like 135-inch 10-point across the trail in front of us and just beat away while we were walking out at 10 in the morning. So our backup spot, even though there was somebody using it, somebody had been in there recently, I mean, we had, you know, 75 yards away, we had visual confirmation of a great public land deer in that spot. So we did have, you know, the, the, the scouting paid off. We did find what we needed, but we looked at a lot of stuff that was not good. And was it, so you, you located the spot that was best. Were there any challenges with actually executing the kill itself or was it kind of just textbook at that point? Um, the, the challenge was the amount of rain that they had down there. Everything was so tall that you're, you would look at, uh, a chunk of ground and you'd think, okay, well, you know, if I hung a stand in that grove of oaks or something, you know, I, I can see a long ways and I can shoot. And then you walk out into it, you know, and I'm, I'm six two and I would walk out into that stuff. And in some places it'd be over my head. And then when I was glassing that bean field, cause I glassed the beans for two nights, those deer would walk out. And if they were in even like a slight depression or if they had their head down and eating, they disappeared. So you couldn't see them. And so I never, I couldn't like, I couldn't see the spot we killed in, but I could see some of the, some of the places they were coming in to get there. And so I never, I never actually got to like lay eyes on the, the spot. I killed my buck and my buddy killed his buck until I walked in there knowing that the deer were gravitating there and knowing that it was kind of one of those parts of the field that was closest to the best woods. And it kind of fell away. So it was, it just wasn't visible. You just knew like that was the corner. And I did see the, the big one that my buddy killed. I watched him go in there twice. And so I knew that there were deer gravitating toward that spot that we couldn't see. And was there anything about the tree that you ended up picking 
at that point. Like you knew there was the right corner to be in, but when you had to actually had to make the decision of where exactly you were going to hunt, why'd you pick that tree? Or was it just the only option? Um, so when I, when I went in there opening night, I went in way early and I, I should say this, you know, we, when I was glassing there, when I was going in the second night, two guys from Michigan drove in and stopped and talked to me and they were super nice. And they said, man, we, we want to hunt in there too. But if you're in there, we'll just wait till you're gone. And so they went and hunted other stuff and didn't go in until we tagged out, which was awesome. Cause you know, it's public land. They could have went in there. Uh, but when I went in opening night, I went in early and it was hot. It was 80 degrees, real strong South wind blowing. And I got to the, the spot. I kind of snuck into where I knew I wanted to set up. Um, I could see that there was a, the fence was down in a specific spot there and it was pounded going through that crossing. And so I started looking around for a tree there. There was a couple little ones, but they were right on top of that crossing. And then there was one that was about 30 yards away, but would give you a real good shot in the beans. And that one had tons of cover. It was a multi-trunk, multi-limbed and it, but it was set up well. So that was, it was just a, it was a gift to have a good tree in that spot. So you got the right tree. You, you if I remember, and I can't remember if, if I heard this in, in your chat with Spencer on Rut Fresh Radio, or if this is just you and me, you and I talking individually, but as you were getting set up in that tree, your buck showed up feeding the beans as you were actually getting set up, right? Yeah. So I, I should tell the whole story about getting set up. So yeah. I, uh, you know, I picked this, this tree and I'm using, uh, you know, climbing sticks and a little lightweight stand and it's my first sit of the year. You know, you know how that is. It feels like you're kind of like relearning what you're doing, even yes. though you've done it a million it's times. It's always a mess. <laughs> and you always, yeah. You always forget something and you screw up. So I'm, I, you know, I get my first two sticks on and I'm kind of hooking the third one on and the way I want to face the stand, uh, it's like. I, I got to be a little careful with the sticks, the way I mount them, because, you know, they weren't, they weren't locking in great. And so I knew when I stepped on it, I knew right away I screwed up and I had my lineman's belt around the tree and I slipped off that lineman's belt and it just instinctively grabbed the tree trunk with my arms. Cause I was reaching around it anyway. And I ended up, um, you know, my lineman's belt caught me. So I ended up only falling like six or eight inches, but I had a big bruise on my arm. I had a, I had bruises where I, I actually grabbed my right arm with my left hand so hard that I left a handprint bruise on my arm. Yikes. Yeah. Just, just a dumb move on my part, but you know, the safety gear saved me. And so anyway, I, I do that. I get myself, you know, resituated and I, I hang the stand and I was using a little millennium stand and they have a pin for the seat that, that holds the seat in place, you know, so you can, you can fold it down out of the way when you're transporting it. But when you get in the tree, you got to put that pin there to hold it up. Well, I get up in the tree and I'm like, the pin's gone. So I'm like, now I've got a seat that's worthless. And so I'm like trying to use my, so I, I get a lifeline up and I get all the safety stuff squared away. So then I have my lineman's belt. I'm like, well, maybe I'll loop my lineman's belt through this tree and around the trunk and try to support it. Cause I'm like, I got five hours till dark and I'm like messing around with this and I look behind me and 52 yards away in the bean field is a 10 pointer feeding full velvet. And I go, "Uh Oh, like I look down, my bow's on the ground. I don't have like an honest way to sit down. And so I'm like, I gotta, I gotta get to that bow 
And so I climbed down the tree and it, what helped me was it was super windy. It was probably 20, 25 mile per hour winds. And I just had a ton of cover around that tree. So I, I shimmied down the steps and hooked up my tow rope to my bow, shimmied back up while he was feeding there. And he couldn't hear me. It was way too windy. And if he looked in the woods, I was in the middle of just a bunch of blowing branches and stuff. And so I got back into the stand, pulled my bow up, you know, got him ranged again and, you know, too far away. But I'm like, he's going to walk, he's going to walk right down that row and give me a phenomenal shot. And he bedded down. So then I'm like, okay, now I, I can't see him, but I know he's there. And now I have time to actually get myself situated. So I figured out my seat. I had a, I had an old bow hook in the bottom of my pack and I run that through the seat so I could actually support the seat and sit down. And then I got situated. And in that process, another buck stood up out of the beans and started feeding a similar size eight pointer. And so I'm like, these deer with, with the bugs that were down there because of the mosquitoes, I think they were just like, we're going to live in this bean field. And if we're here, nobody can see us in this corner unless they're on top of us. And that wind's blowing all the way across this wide open field and pushing all those mosquitoes off of them. So I think that that was one of those little microclimate deals where those bucks were just like, this is the best place for me to be right now. Man. And then you got your shot the next day. Well, sorry, we're you going to continue. Yeah. So I should, I should say, you know, he, he got up and bedded down a couple more times. And then I got my shot as he, as he worked his way closer. And then I sent my buddy, I got out quick and then sent my buddy in the next day. Cause it was, there was still lots of potential there. Yeah. So what did that next day's hunt, how did that play out? Did it play out just like you were thinking the original night was going to going to based off of the scouting you had? Um, it, it went different than I expected and better than I expected. Um, he, you know, it was hot, you know, 90 degrees, miserable, hot conditions when he went in and he didn't have any early movement, but he had a buck come in, uh, you know, later in the evening when the shadows were, were getting there, that was, he thought was like a, a close to Pope and young type eight pointer, really nice buck. And he was trying to get a shot at that buck. It worked its way down the beans, but it was like, just outside his range he felt comfortable with and so as he was trying you know wondering if this buck is going to get there he saw he saw a different buck come out on that trail through the down fence and so he switched gears he said i'm going to shoot that one that one walked out and it was that big one that i had glassed the last two nights and it came right down the bean row the, the edge of the beans at 20 yards and he thumped it wow so do you do you think now having like two bucks in two the first two nights of the season on this public land, do you, as I, as I listen to your story, if I were to pick what I th- what seems to be like the most important thing you guys did right, my guess would be that it is the fact that you had the scouting. It was the having looked at this area earlier in the year and then showing up several days early, glassing, 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 picked the right spot and went in and killed. Is that right? Or do you think there was some other crux of the hunt? No, that was it. I mean, I, I had pinned my hopes on some areas that were unhuntable and I had really got high hopes over this, a uh, different walk-in ranch I found. And we spent some time on that scouting in a midday and it was worthless. There was, there weren't any deer in there. And so being able to glass 
for two nights on that bean field, put us on those deer. And, you know, that buck that, you know, I killed a good one. That buck my buddy killed was awesome. Yeah. And I, you know, I watched that deer go in there two nights in a row and that buck, I, you know, I scored it when I was home here in Minnesota a little bit ago. That was 151 inch deer, Jeez. you know, I mean, on public triple brow tie, like special. And it, all, all it was, was we, we saw him in there coming into a certain corner of that field and we were the first ones in there. You know, I, I'm sure if you went down there now and tried to play that program, it would be too late. Yeah. Yeah. So, so fast forward a week or whatever it was, a week and a half, two weeks from then to Minnesota, it's opening day in Minnesota and you going for a hunt. Now, in the case of the public land, you shot a couple days early, you glassed. What did yep. your scouting entail leading up to the opener in Minnesota? Oh man. Um, you know, some random weekends all summer long. This is, this is a private dairy farm that I have permission to hunt. Uh, and it's, it gets a lot of traffic, but it's, it's a cool place. And, you know, I went down there, I, I try to make it down there like once a month to hang stands and glass and check cameras. And that's like my traditional, you know, I can hang stands and trim shooting lanes and I can run cameras and, and do the whole thing. And that's, that's like the place I have to do the entire process because it's different on public, you know? And so I had stands up and I had a, a plan in mind and I had a buck that I really wanted to chase, which is, I think he's a legit typical booner in there. And I went after him opening morning, uh, in, in kind of a, it's kind of a year long or a season long pinch point where a, a washout is on a hillside. And I thought he might be in there. And I got in there super early and it's the, the, the entrance route that I made to get in there follows this washout. And it's like, American Ninja bow hunter going down through there. It's wet <laughs> rocks and logs, and it's like to not fall down. Getting in there is a huge win. And I got in there, got set up. It was awesome. Conditions were right, wind was right. And at like seven thirty in the morning, I heard voices in the woods, and I'm going, "What is? How is it possible that I can hear somebody in here?" And then I heard a chainsaw fire up like 150 yards away from me, and so my hunt got blown up there because they were between where me and where I expected the deer to come from. And there was no deer coming through there. So I, I bailed, made my plan for the evening. And in the process, I ended up talking to another bow hunter on the farm, which took out one spot I could hunted. And then I saw a Facebook post from this girl I graduated with. Her husband was out hunting there, squirrel hunting with their kid. They were, so that's the other end where that booner was living. Oh man. And so I'm like, all right, you, you know, I mean, that's just how it is when you don't have control of it. Yeah. So yeah, the, the stand that I, I kind of had limited options after the squirrel hunters and the other bow hunter and the, the woodcutters, I had hung one, uh, one field edge stand and another part of the farm where, you know, there's usually some good bucks at some point of the season. And usually they back up in there and, and bed in the woods when it's, they go hard antlers. So I figured somebody would be in there that was good size. And so I, you know, it was partially, I had limited options because of the other intrusions by people and partially because the conditions were right. You know, the wind again was South, Southwest smoking, same kind of conditions as Nebraska, but they were, they were good for that stand. That that was intentional. And so I, I went in there early opening night, uh, just, just partially because it was all mostly what I had going on, and because I knew there would be something in there. And you know, deer started moving pretty early. Had one 
solid three-year-old type buck come out, feed with some does, and everything was like real, it was feeling really good. And then I heard a, a side-by-side on the minimum maintenance road going real slow. And probably, you know, the road's probably 500 yards from the stand. So I can't see it, but I can hear it. And those deer that, that were in the field at that time, they heard that side-by-side and they all bolted out of the field. Ugh. And so at, at, you know, this was probably about a half hour till the end of legal shooting light. My, the whole alfalfa field cleared out. And I'm sitting here going, man, what's going on up here where these deer are this spooky on opening night? And I don't, I don't know if somebody's been shining in there or, you know, off-roading or what. So, you know, either way, you know, what are you going to do? So I'm sitting there and it's still a half hour left. And I had had one doe come out of the trail that I was really hoping they'd follow because it takes them 18 yards around that stand and it dumps them into the field in just a perfect spot. And I was sitting there and, and heard something behind me and had three little raccoons go by and I was watching them. And I heard something else and I'm like, man, I wonder if that's another raccoon. And I looked back and I saw this rack going through the brush or this, this antler tines. And as soon as the buck cleared, you know, the trail 20 yards away and I got a good look at him, I was like, oh man, I, I know what deer this is. And if he comes out, he's going to be 18 yards broadside and he's worth filling my tag opening night. And that's exactly what he did. And he walked out and it was just like a gift. It was just a beautiful shot opportunity. What do you think he was doing? I mean, he was heading out to feed, but why did he come through there? Do you think like what made that be the spot within the spot? So there's a, behind me, there's a sort of an Oak flat. And then there's, there's an old fence row through the woods and just two ridges that they, they like to bet on. It's, it's just thicker. And it's kind of this, you know, I guess you could call it a soft edge in there between two types of cover, like the more open oak flats and a little more brushy stuff. And so somebody big usually claims that spot. And so the, the, the closest route to play the wind in their favor and get to the field is out of that trail. So he just, you know, when he went hard antler, he backed up into that spot, started betting in there and it was opening night. So he just came out a little bit early instead of waiting for it to get dark. And he just, that, that, that was just like the perfect field edge gimme on opening night. You know, like even the same thing in Nebraska, if it would have been, I, I wouldn't sit that stand a week later probably because I know people would have been in there and it just, that deer is probably not going to make that mistake. Yeah. It's interesting. Both of these situations, your Nebraska hunt and your Minnesota hunt, it was you saw these bucks using a food source with long distance observation and then you hunted the very first time you could in there and they made that mistake on the first night. I mean, is the moral of the story for you as you're looking back on these two hunts, simply that the, the value of long distance observation and then striking before hunting pressure changes things. Is that the takeaway here? Uh, it's a big one, man. You know, there's, there's so much value to that long range scouting if you get away with it. But you know, I think my takeaway for it or a different takeaway would just be that, you, the scouting gives you options. And if you, you know, if you pin your hopes on one stand or one setup or one food plot or one idea, you know, if you're hunting places with lots of people and so many variables that are out of your control, you're, you're going to like plan A is going to blow up. Plan B is going to blow up. Like you got to have, got to have some good options to fall back on. So you don't push a dead program or you don't just not go. 
And so I think, I think the scouting, you know, it obviously plays into where you should be and when you should be there, but it also just gives you more places to be. And I, I, I just think that matters a lot. Yeah. That's a great point. And that, that was the situation, I guess, with both of those two hunts as well. So interesting how such similar situations could play out in, in very separate states in, in unique ways in their own right, but uh, with such similar core truths. And you're able to take advantage of it. So I think we can all take something away from that and, and learn from those experiences. Um, I hope so. I hope so. You gonna you gonna continue the trend and and three peat here with a kill in in Colorado? Uh, man, I am going into Colorado with low standards, and I have an either sex elk tag, and I have a bear tag, and I have a small game tag. So <laughs> uh, I I fully intend to try to take advantage of every opportunity that I'm given, and to come away from Colorado with some kind of meat in the back of my truck. So I hope so. I hope so too, and I hope some of the some of your good juju and your your smart hunting will rub off on me and help me uh, get my season back on track after a tough uh, September hunt. So thank you, Tony, Buddy. for for sharing. Thank you, man. You just got you got to come to North Dakota with me, man. I know your your timing keeps on it keeps on not lining up with mine, but I need to get out there. It sounds like sounds like a little different time of year would make a difference. So. It, it, it would give you a different perspective, but it's, you know, there's always so much going on out there that you just, part of this is just luck, man. It is. And I, yeah, I mean, as folks just heard me describe a little while ago, and as you and I talked about on the phone a week or two ago, you know, I had my chance at a great buck and I just got greedy. So that's a lesson to be learned, I guess, too. <laughs> it happens, man. It does. All right, man, we'll drive safe and uh, can't wait to hear how it goes. Awesome. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop 
for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Thanks, Mark. All right, so now we are here with Andy May. And Andy, you wrapped up an early September hunt in Kentucky successfully. So what I'm hoping you can do here to help kind of round out what we've done in this episode so far is kind of hear the cliff notes of your hunt, how it ended up going down. And and then I want to spend some time in the back end breaking down like your big takeaway from this, what the crux of the hunt was. But I guess first walk me through real fast how this Kentucky hunt came together. Okay. Um, I actually was not planning on taking a, uh, early September hunt this year. It, that, that time of year has quickly become like one of my favorite times to hunt. But this year I had an elk hunt planned in late September and I just wasn't going to try to squeeze a, an early season, uh, September hunt in just seemed like too much going on, but some things came together and I had uh, a lead and made a couple phone calls and I got permission to hunt a small, I, I don't know, medium sized piece of private land. Um, on the map, it looked very interesting cause it was near town. Um, kind of, you know, sort of suburban style, but it was a, a, a decent sized piece for being near a town. Um, it clearly had some crops, it had a river bottom through it and it just looked like it had a ton of potential. And I decided last minute, it was a, it was a Wednesday evening that I decided, you know what, I'm going to go do this for the weekend. Um, I only could squeeze in the weekend and the opener was on a Saturday and I just decided to go for it. So I made the decision Wednesday night, left Thursday um, and drove, you know, drove straight through to get there Thursday evening in glass. And my, my plan was to just long range scout this property and just lay eyes on a shooter. It, that was the goal. You know, if I knew if I could just lay eyes on a shooter, then I had a chance and, you know, that's always a long shot, but it's a good part of Kentucky, great genetics not that particularly hard to find decent bucks that time of year. They're pretty active, especially if you got some, uh, some good food, which this place did. And the pressure was relatively low. There were some hunters around, but this isn't like a highly pressured public land piece. It's a, you know, it was a private piece and relatively low pressure. So the animals were pretty relaxed as they are that time of year anyway. So, um, I'll just jump into, you know, how that first night of scouting went. Um, I set up the spotting scope and I glassed, I got, I got on a, a high spot and I was able to glass this giant river bottom in a really big bean field. And I felt really good about the spot, except for my, the, the number one spot that jumped out on me on the map that I wanted to scout and glass um, I couldn't see from the spot. And the reason that spot jumped out to me was, was, were two, two reasons. Um, it looked like the best type of bedding or security cover was down in that part of the river bottom. It was a little wider. 
there were some points and some low spots in the field and I just couldn't see it from that vantage point. But I could see 95% of the property from where I was and I, you know, I just went with it that night, two days before the season, I glassed a couple bucks, like year and a half year old deer and a doe and a fawn. So it didn't pan out like I hoped. So the next morning did the same thing, glass from the same spot. And I did see a small bachelor group of bucks, probably two year old deer, uh, you know, hundred inches to one fifteen type inch deer, nice deer, but not really what I was looking for. And then I, for, for Friday, uh, for Friday evening, I was kind of up in the air, what I wanted to do. I was contemplating driving an hour to an area that I hunted before that I know quite well. Um, and just trying that. And then the other part of me was trying to decide, is it worth maneuvering and glassing that last 5% of this property that I couldn't see from the previous vantage point? And, and in my opinion, on the map, looked to be like the best. So I decided to just stick it out. And I basically... Uh, I, I, I forego all the 95% of that property and I set up just so I could see that low spot, that 5% left of um, the beans and that thicker part of the river bottom. And I set up for the evening and had some deer come out, had a really cool encounter. I was just set up in the beans. I like tucked down in the beans. They were about waist high and two young bucks, probably a year and a half year old came out and they ended up coming within like seven yards of me in the beans. I got some really neat video and they had no idea I was there. And right before dark, well, about probably about 25 minutes before dark, I see two deer come out of uh, this point that comes out into the field right out of that river bottom. And I glass and it's two good bucks, two shooters, the one in the back, a little bit bigger than the one in front. And that's all, that's all I wanted to see. I wanted to lay eyes. Now I had something to go off of. Um, they were kind of working my way. So I just hunched down and I got the heck out of there. I didn't bother too much with, with videoing or anything like that. I just wanted to get out undetected. So that goes, uh, that takes us to opening evening. And I went in with the saddle and was kind of, you know, sneaking my way in. I knew kind of roughly where I wanted to set up, but I just didn't have the tree picked out. And wind was a little iffy. I guess you could say it was, uh, not perfect for me, but it wasn't what I would say dead wrong. It was kind of like a just off wind, which is something that I do often, you know, when I'm being, I guess a little more aggressive and on this hunt, because it was such a short term hunt, two days, I was definitely leaning on that more aggressive side. Mm -hmm. Um, so you know, if I, if I had five days to hunt here, truthfully, I probably wouldn't have pushed it that first evening because Sunday's forecast was the perfect win. But I try, you know, I decided to roll with it and I found a tree that was perfect. And judging by the travel line of these two bucks, you know, they would have came within 40 yards of this tree, uh, the, the, the night before. So I felt pretty good about the sit if the wind would hold true. And I got up there, it was, it was really hot, really humid, just sweating my butt off. 
and the wind was decent. It wasn't great, but it wasn't decent. I should be able to shoot these deer if they come out before they win me. Well, about a, an hour into the hunt or so, as you know, it starts kind of switching back and mm-hmm. forth. It's, you know, it doesn't always blow from the north. It's, you know, it's a little northeast. It's a little northwest. And then all of a sudden, you know, it, it gets a couple times through the night where it's just blowing me dead right into their bedding area. And I'm within... I'm within 110 yards, maybe 100 yards of where these, where I think these deer are bedded. And I was like, oh man, that's not good. So maybe once, maybe you can get away with that. Um, you know, I thought maybe, maybe it missed them, but then, you know, two or three more times throughout the night, it just keeps blowing right in there. And I'm like, this is, this is not good. So needless to say, they didn't show up that first night. And I kind of thought I shot myself in the foot with, uh, with that first hunt. So, but knowing what I know about Kentucky, I've hunted their early season in their opener several times now it's low pressure, you know, even in the, even in the public land I've hunted down there to me, it's, it's really, really low pressure that time of year. Now they might think it's higher, but it's just not high compared to what I'm used to. And even in this scenario on the piece of private, it was really low. So I felt like there's a, there's a good chance that I didn't screw things up completely. And I looked, poured over the map and I was really going back and forth. Do I want to sit in the same tree or do I want to adjust? And the, the two, the two adjustments that I was considering was moving closer to the bedding area, which probably eight times out of 10 is something I would do. But given this setup and the way I thought these deer were betting on this point, I didn't feel like that was a really good option because if I move closer, I literally have to, I have to go across the beans and kind of get into that point. And the way deer bed often in farm country is when the wind is at their back, they will, they will face the feeding area. So you know, vegetation was high. There's a chance I could have got in there. It was really thick. There's a chance I could have got in there, maybe got up, set up undetected. They couldn't see clearly out into the beans just because of all the tangle and the vegetation, but it was really, really risky. Yeah. They could have been, they could have been bedded, you know, 20 yards inside, or they could have been bedded 70 yards inside. But I knew there was a general area where they were and it just seemed like a way to, you know, risky situation. So what I did was I said, okay, what are, what's my other option? My other option is to kind of hunt on the pattern that I saw that night before the opener, but I did think that they were going to adjust. And I, I felt like they got, you know, several nose full of my scent the night before. I just didn't feel confident that they were going to go by the tree that I was in. So what I did was I knew where they were going. I knew the direction they wanted to go. And I just rolled the dice hoping that they would still move before dark. But what I did is I actually moved farther away. And I know I've told this to a couple of people and they're like, what? You moved farther away? Well, I moved farther away um, in anticipation, anticipation that they would skirt the tree that I was in before. So I knew the direction and the travel they wanted to go. I moved farther down the line so that if they took that same sort of angle, but skirted that tree, eventually, if they moved far enough before dark, they would still, 
get to where I was. Does that make sense? It does, but it also does seem like a a decent leap, like a leap of faith to think like that they'll come out again and then that, yes, they'll skirt it, but they'll make it far enough, even though they have previously had human scent now in their nose, but to mm-hmm. believe they would skirt that edge and still make it to you during daylight. So I, I what I'm wondering is what percent, like how confident were you in this? Did you go in there thinking, well, this is the best idea I've got, but probably 20% chance or 10% chance, or, or did you go in thinking, you know, this is going to happen? No, I would say uh, I definitely didn't think it was going to happen. So you and I and a lot of listeners out here that hunt, you know, higher pressure deer, that's the way we think. We know we typically only get one chance. Yeah. And if they get they get your scent, it's usually over. You're usually not going to kill them in that location again. So we we know that we have to make that first time count. This isn't that scenario. And a lot of times I hunt out of state, it's not that scenario. You you can often get more than one chance, but they may adjust. Now I'm not saying you can get eight chances, but you might be able to get two. Yeah. And, um, so when I adjusted, it was, it was, I literally, I sitting in the same tree, I, I got rid of that option. I just didn't think that was going to pan out because the, I just felt like they knew something of danger was there and just going off, you know, past hunts and past experiences. I just didn't, I felt like I could have seen them from there, but I felt like they were going to skirt me. So my two choices were move in tight to bedding or move farther away down their travel route, you know, on the way to where they were going. They were heading towards this, this river crossing to some, some other crop fields. They were kind of just browsing through the beans when I saw them, but moving at a fairly decent, you know, clip. So I just choose the latter. And I would say, yeah, probably roughly 20 to 30%. I thought for sure I'd see them maybe at last light. Will they get to me? That's the, that's the, the question. So I was left with those two options and I chose not to scoot in tight to the bedding because I had a pretty darn good idea where they were. And I knew I couldn't get, I really couldn't get any closer without busting them. I was, mm-hmm. I was 90% sure of that. So I, I, I guess I took the the lesser of two evils and right. hoped for the best. So you got up in your tree and what happened? Yep. So I get up in my tree and wind is perfect. Things are, things are looking good. Things are feeling good. And, you know, these deer, the day before season moved 20, 25 minutes before dark for last shooting light. The day of the opener, they got a whiff of me. So I'm expecting last minute shooting. And then I'm sitting there kind of just, you know, being patient. Some deer are starting to kind of filter out in the beans. And all of a sudden I look up and these two, these two bucks, these same two bucks are exiting the bedding area about an hour before dark. <laughs> so even earlier, which, which shocked me, but they did exactly what I anticipated. They didn't come off that point, off the tip of the point. They came off 50 yards away from the tip of the point, still out of the point, but 50 yards further from where I was set up uh, the night before, totally skirting that original stand location. And I could tell that they were on alert because they came out and they spent that first five, 10 minutes staring over in that direction of the old tree. So they knew I was there. Yeah. They, they knew I had been there, but they, they adjusted and they still came out. It's still an early season, early September, 
pattern on relaxed, unpressured deer. And, you know, a, a September, early September deer are far different than our opener up October 1st. They, yeah. they act completely different. You know, they're still in bachelor groups. They're still deer moving, uh, you know, very early into, um, the food sources and the deer just feel more comfortable moving when they're in groups and then when other deer are out in the food source already unbothered. And that's what I think happened here. There were several deer already out in the beans unbothered. These deer popped up, they came out and they're, they're kind of looking in that direction of the, the old tree. And after, I don't know, about 10 minutes, they just forgot about it, start munching on the beans and slowly start making their way right in my direction. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is actually going to happen. I knew right then I was going to get a crack at this as long as the wind held true. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty wild. And like I said, I told the story to some friends. I was like, what you did what? Yeah. <laughs> but, but I, hopefully I explained it in a way that the listeners can understand why I made that choice. And I'm yeah. not saying I, I knew this was the right choice. I felt super confident. I didn't, I just, I made the less risky choice. Yeah. So when you look at this and, and I guess your story ends with, you get a shot at a great buck and you kill the nice 10 pointer. Um, when you look back on it, what do you think was the crux of this or your big takeaway? Was it the fact that you observed, observed, observed until you saw what you needed and then struck? Um, or was it that you struck and then it wasn't quite right and you knew how to adjust or like, Where's your, where's your head at when you try to analyze like what came of this and what you take from it? Yeah, probably a couple things. Um, exactly that, you know, one thing is again, early September, these deer are a different animal. If you can lay your eyes on a shooter, you have a really good chance. And if you're in a state like Kentucky or maybe a, a slightly lower pressure state where you got that early September opener, you can be really aggressive and you can move in on these deer. Um, they're, they're ultra relaxed. They're usually hitting the crop fields really hard. Um, easy to pattern. The tricky part is just finding a good one to go after. And I, that that's where I got lucky. And, and luckily, um, on my glassing, you know, instead of walking away after I observed 95% of the property and didn't see a shooter, I zoned in on that 5% of the property that looked to be really good. And looked to be like it had the best bedding, the lowest point in the field where a lot of times these big deer like to enter. And that's exactly where they came out. Mm -hmm. So I would say that would be one. And, uh, yeah, you know, that, that time of year, um, if you're in type of farm country or, or maybe more like Western Plains, the play, in my opinion, is to sit back and, and glass. I had, I devoted four days to this hunt, but only two days to hunt. I devoted those first two days to just scout. Yeah. And, and that, that, that if I, if I didn't do that, then I'm, then I'm just playing that guessing game. Yeah. I can probably pick out on a map. Yeah. This looks like the best spot. This is the low spot. This is probably where a good one would pop out, but I don't know if a good one's there. So that, that time of year, that, that scouting, that glassing in that type of habitat, that type of country, I think is hugely important. I'd rather do that three days and hunt one. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's, that's definitely something that every year I, I try more and more of that type of this type of hunt. I'm learning that the importance of that 
scouting, it, like you said, matters almost more than the actual hunt itself. The intel, get informed, then strike. That's right. And then one more thing too, you know, I, I take a lot of these two to four day trips. I've been on the, the podcast enough. Everybody knows I don't get vacation time. I work at a school. Um, so what I do is I often take weekend trips or a long weekend, like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, something like that, and just drive all night. And a lot of guys don't think that that's worth it. And I understand that. Like, you know, we all have in our mind that this, the hunts should be a week, you know, five days, seven days. That should be your hunt. Well, I've never been able to do that. Um, it's always been kind of that weekend warrior type type hunt for me. But what I what I tell guys is is it's totally worth it because yeah, you might only be able to hunt two or three days, but if you do that two or three years in a row, that's a seven to nine day hunt. It's just mm-hmm. spread out. And not only that, you're learning the area better. So every year you go back to that state or that type of habitat or or even maybe that property, you're learning it more and more. You're becoming more efficient. And also on those short hunts, I think it's really kind of shaped my style to be more aggressive and to be more attentive and to, to pick out the exact kill spot rather than if I have five days to seven days to 10 days, you know, I might kind of roll the dice. I might sit here for an observation sit, or I might, you know, I might sit the spot. I don't have a hundred percent confidence in, but it looks decent. It, it, I think it just really, uh, helps you form an aggressive, but thoughtful type type of approach to get it done in such a short time. And I'm not saying that you can go and kill five year, six year old bucks every time on these trips, but I've been really successful on two. I mean, on a, on some three, four and, and, and occasionally even older bucks than that. So it could definitely can be done. I definitely tell guys, you know, if you have the time to do it, go do it because you're all, it, it's only going to help you improve as a hunter. And I think, a lot of guys out there like you, like me, that's our goal. We just want to improve. We want to continue to grow and become better hunters. And those short trips, you know, they're not always successful, but I never, I never once have regretted one. Even, you know, driving all night, driving all night back. I came, I drove all night, Sunday night and was back to work Monday morning and I was dog tired, but man, I had a blast deer or not. And I didn't regret it. Yeah. And I think you made a great point about, even though they're short trips, taking like making sure you soak every bit out of it with that learning experience. And it's kind of like the more the whole moral of the story of this whole podcast we've done with, you know, before you, we talked to Tony Peterson, we talked to Dan, and then I, all three of us, now you, we've kind of done a postmortem on each of our hunts. And we, we had the hunt, but it's not enough just to have the hunt. Then you need to take a little time. Maybe it's on the drive home. Maybe it's the next night. Maybe it's, you know, with a buddy talk through what happened, what did I do right, what did I do wrong, what can I learn from this? And I just think like that little step, that final step can make a big difference. It's so easy to just like continue on with life and life just flies by and all of a sudden it's, you know, weeks and months later and you never really stewed on it a little bit. Taking this time to just, I know you do this, you look at your journals, you look at the numbers, you look at, yeah, I know you're a thinker on these things and think back and replay and try to figure out why things happened and why this worked or why it didn't. And uh, I think that's why you're able to have this success now. And it's, I think it's, uh, 
I think it's a good, this isn't the ultimate lesson that I thought we'd be learning from this podcast, but I think it kind of is. Do this. Think about this. Break down your buddies' hunts. Think about theirs. That's kind of the magic, I think, at least uh, from my perspective, is figuring out how to, to get the most out of every experience and learn from it, figure out more for the next time. So thank you, Andy, for helping us do that and taking a little time here. I know we went longer than we'd originally talked uh, about doing. So always, always really helpful stuff. All right, man. No problem. My pleasure. All right. So you've heard a whole lot here so far. You had the story of Dan's elk hunt. You had the story of my North Dakota hunt. You had Tony's couple hunts over there in Nebraska and Minnesota. And finally we wrapped it up with Andy down in Kentucky. A lot of distance covered here, but if I had to sit back and drill down to a couple core things. Now, it's a little bit harder on Dan's hunt because it was an elk hunt, but I can still even find something in common here. The, the big things drilled down to two points, I think. Number one, the importance of scouting. In particular, watching deer from afar, watching animals from afar, long-distance observation. We talked about it right there at the end with Andy, and we talked about it for sure with Tony, and I, of course, was doing it in North Dakota, It's so much better in most cases to watch, to learn, to become informed before you go diving in trying to hunt those deer right away. This can be applicable in early September. This could be as applicable in mid-October. Many times of the year, getting the info first and then striking is better than diving right in. Because if you go in there without knowing what you're doing, you can blow a place up real quick. Now, of course, this is going to work better in certain situations like pre-opening day, like it was for Tony, like it was for Andy. If you can see a deer doing something in his, his you know, bed-to-feed pattern that he's doing pre-hunting season, that first night, you got a great chance to take advantage of it. So in the case of folks that still have hunting seasons opening October 1st, you can still take advantage of this. These deer are still relatively on a bed-to-feed pattern. It might not be the same thing they're doing in the summer, but you can take advantage of what they're doing right now if you can watch from afar and then strike. Now, fast forward into late October, things will be different, of course. But still, there's something to be said about watching. If you already don't have some kind of great intel, if you don't have trail camera pictures telling you what to do, if you don't have historical knowledge of the area, and you know that at certain times of the year you need to be at this little spot, if you don't have that, if you're going in blind somewhere, really you need to consider the idea of observation stands. Of course, certain terrain types, certain regions aren't going to give you good sight lines. But if you can find some way to work from the outside in, Many, many times that is a smart way to do it. That is a big takeaway from this conversation here for me today. Secondly, I think everybody here had to pivot. Everyone came into their hunts with some certain set of ideas, whether it was, you know, Andy thinking he was going to see bucks on the beans right away and then moving in and then he screwed it up. And then he had to pivot off of that original idea. He thought he could set up right there by that bedding area and the wind messed him up. The next day he could have done one of two things. He could have went right back to what he'd done before. That's the easy option. Or you could pivot and adjust. He took a look at what the impact was and adjusted. Moved in a different direction than most people would have and he killed a buck. Look at Tony. He headed into his main spot. He thought he was going to shoot one of the biggest bucks of his life. And then there's some guys in there mowing or not mowing cutting down trees and stuff. He had to pivot. He had to adjust. He had to have a plan B that he could fall back on. He had to have a plan C because the squirrel hunting thing messed things up further. In my case, I headed into an area. Now, 
you know, my hunt didn't have the happy ending that others had, but I had three different chunks located with options. Ended up being that one of them had other guys hunting it, went to the other option. There was someone else hunting that one too, fell back on the one, and that's where I found those bucks. Now, I know I didn't kill one, but I could have killed one that first night. I do think there's a little bit of that pivot option there. Now, maybe I could have done an even better job of that. Maybe I should have had a spot number four and a spot number five, and maybe I should have moved to one of those new regions sooner after things had gotten so tough. I still have lots to learn, but I do think having that plan be in place is so important. Same thing with Dan. They hunted that first area, realized it wasn't happening. He moved across to another basin, moved a couple miles to the west. If you go into a hunt, whether it's locally where you hunt, you know, every month of the season, or if it's a trip. If you go into it with just one idea, one game plan, you're going to be left hung out to dry as soon as something goes wrong, because inevitably it will. I mean, nine times out of ten, what you want to have happen will not happen flawlessly. There's going to be some kind of wrench thrown into your plan. So you need to plan for that. Go into your hunts, go into your season, assuming that option A probably is going to get messed up. So you better have a plan B. And really, you need to have a plan C and a plan D and a plan E. Try to account for all these different possibilities because the better you think about it now, the better you'll be able to handle that situation in the moment. And in the moment, that's when stuff's tough. If you're trying to figure it all out, brand new ideas in the moment, with the stress of the fact that you've got, you know, two hours left of daylight or with the fact that you've got one day left of your hunt and you're sitting there, ah, crap, what am I going to do? That's when mistakes get made. That's when frustration flares up. That's when hunts get quit on early. But if you had a plan B or C or D already ready, that's already been vetted, that's already, you know, has got some possibilities behind it, you can quickly then flip the switch, say, okay, this isn't happening, moving to plan B, execute on it. That right there, that extra forethought you put in maybe a month beforehand or a week beforehand, that can make all the difference. So couple things for you to think about here. Over the weekend and coming into the next week, I hope this is interesting. hope by listening to all these different stories, and yeah, there's some BS and some baloney and some fun in there too, but I do hope you're able to take something from each one of our stories, both the successes and the failures that can help you in your hunts coming up here. And geez, for a lot of us in the coming days, if not weeks, it is upon us. Hunting season is here. That is that's music to my ears. I know that I mentioned this with Dan a couple episodes ago, but just a reminder from both he and I, our two pieces of advice to you that were true then and they're just as true now is number one, have fun. And number two, when the going gets tough, keep on pushing through it. Fall back on plan B or C or D and just keep on getting after because that's type two fun. And when you push through it, when you make it happen or when you at least have that feeling of fulfillment that you tried hard and you gave it everything you have, that's an amazing feeling too. So, Just a couple quick reminders before we shut this down. Number one, the Back 40 Project has launched. Our first episode of the series is up. It's online for you to watch. You can check it out at the Meat Eater YouTube channel, or if you go to themeateater.com, you will see the page for the Back 40. You can go there. You can watch the video. You can see other content, articles, how-to videos, see maps of the property. Check it all out. Follow along on social media, of course, as well. And if you want to win that hunt, if you want to win a hunt to join me and Steve on Hunt on the Back 40, go to themeateater.com slash win a hunt. And finally, last if not least, we haven't asked for this in a while, but if you're enjoying this podcast and if you've got 30 extra seconds, go on over to Apple iTunes or the podcast app, leave a rating or review for this podcast. It's a huge help. 
We have been just blessed with so many great supporters, and I appreciate that very much. So thank you in advance, and until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.